Hello, darlings! Welcome back to Hashtag Glum Squad, the podcast devoted to the wonderful and wacky world of Unko Takahashi's Urusei Yatsura. I'm Lom Ramayasha, your host, and that's right, we're not one and done, nor were we meant to be an annual show, even though it has in fact been a year since our last episode. I apologize really deeply for that unexpected year-long hiatus, which is entirely my fault. What happened is that I basically exhausted myself by editing so many long podcasts for Manga Mavericks that I kept pushing editing this episode back farther and farther, and the longer time went on, the more stressed out and daunting a task it felt to actually edit it. I promised several times over the course of the last year that I'd finish editing it and finally release it, and each time I missed those deadlines, the more hopeless it felt. However, recently I managed to regain some more time to myself, and with that, more motivation to clear up my backlog of unfinished projects, and this finished episode is the result of that effort. From here on out, I'm hoping to resume production on Lump Squad with 8C on our originally proposed monthly schedule. It's definitely a shame to have had such a large gap between the release of our first episode and the second, but hey, it took the Yurusiatsura manga a year and a half of irregular serialization until it became a proper long-running series, so you can think of our first episode as a pilot and this second episode onward as the real beginning of our regular podcast. Thank you guys so much for being patient with this and looking forward to more Lum Squad. We received a lot of enthusiasm for the first episode, and a lot of people have been asking about when the second would come out over the past couple of months, and I hope you guys will enjoy this episode enough to forgive the wait. And hey, if you don't want to wait another month for our third episode, check out our recent Manga Eric's episode on the Yurisiyatsura manga with Dawn from the Anime Nostalgia Podcast, which was a ton of fun and also very informative about the early days of Yurisiyatsu fandom in North America back in the 90s. But I've kept you guys waiting long enough on Lump Squad, so it's time to put weird and weird together and make things even weirder once again as we head into episode 2 of Hashtag Lump Squad talking about the Yurisiyatsura anime. Hello, darlings! We're the Hashtag Lum Squad, a podcast hosted by me, Lum Ramayasha. And me, Andrew A.C. Yoshimura. And we're devoted to discussing the wonderful world of Rumiko Takahashi's Yurusayatsura. And today, on our second episode, we are going to talk about the anime, following up on our first episode, where we discussed our thoughts on the manga and our history with that. Awesome. So uh, I'll just start by giving us a bit of a rundown on the anime itself. It started, or first aired, on the 14th of October, 1981, and it was aired on Fuji Television, which was probably one of the premier networks, free-to-air networks in Japan at the time. They had a lot of good stuff, and they had a lot of very, very popular shows uh, on the 80s and 90s. But it's kind of fair to say that that channel has been in a bit of a decline recently. They're nowhere near as popular as they once were, unfortunately, Mm. for them. Uh, So the first season had, um, let's see, 54 episodes. It went from 1981 to 1982. Um, So that's episode one to episode 54. Season two went from 83 to 84. So there was a bit more of a gap there. 
and that had uh, from fifth episode 55 to episode 106, so another really big season. Season 3 was 84 to 85, and that was episode 107 to 149, so a few less in that one. And finally, season 4 was episode 150 to 194 from 1985 to 1986. So there's a solid good five years and four seasons, and uh, most of the movies happened at that time as well. Mm-hmm. Though I often wonder about the season divisions for the show. Over the years, I've seen it done numerous ways. By when the opening changes, by when the year changes. With Yurisayatsura, I think because it's a long-running continuous anime, there is not necessarily designated seasons but i don't know how it is like in japan how it's treated like if they put it out in season box sets or anything or no i think it's fair to say that um although they did start being released on vhs and that started happening in 1983 i do believe and also they released it on laserdisc as well it wasn't so much sectioned off into seasons it was just they released it whenever they whenever they could and whenever you know there was demand for it so after the um after the seasons or after the series finished they would do actual big whole releases. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately a lot of them have been limited so there is a DVD release which is very expensive on Yahoo Auction and eBay and there is an even a Blu-ray release which is incredibly expensive because they only released it for like a very short time. So those go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars online, unfortunately, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a shame. But they have had a pretty strong record of releasing a lot of it, um, and a, and the music as well. Like the music is is incredibly popular. You mentioned that uh, there is a lot of uh, season series opening and ending uh, song changes or the themes, and the first uh, "Love No Love" song is so iconic that they kept that one in for a long time, for most of the first season, I think, and basically just uh, changed out the ending a couple of times. Yes, the first opening, Lum's Love Song, that lasted the first 77 episodes of the season before it changed to Dancing Star at episode 78. So that's even halfway through, basically, or at least, you know, a third of the way through the second season. So yes. that's pretty incredible that it lasted even beyond the first season. Mm-hmm. And you can see why it's pretty representative of the show. And it, again, it is very iconic. If you were to think of the Your Seatsu opening that best represents the show and you would most associate with the show, I think you'd go with Lum's Love Song because just the entire sequence of it and the fact that the idea is that it's Lum singing the song to Ataru about how he'll never be able to get away from her. That is the show. That is the premise of the show. And it's very And if fitting. you listen to the lyrics, <laughs> it's actually pretty creepy. Yeah, I mean, but that fits the what the dynamic was at the start, was that this alien girl, this psychotic alien girl, was entering Ataru's life and causing total mayhem on it. And, like, that's how the, the series began, especially in the manga. In the anime, they soften Lum's character more so to the point where it's not 
it becomes less fitting more quickly in the anime, which is interesting. But I, I, in terms of like what the premise of the show was, what the premise of the series was at the beginning, it's very fitting. Though one aspect of that opening that does go out of style very fast is the emphasis on the love triangle between Ataru, Lum, and Shinobu, which is a big thing. It's like, the idea is that Love and Shinobu are competing over Ataru. They're doing that shimmy together. The final shot sequence is like them on the mood and like Shinobu and them are pushing on two sides of the moon to wing Ataru back their way. And that aspect of the series is dropped so early on that it's kind of amazing that the opening uh, shows this kind of idea of what the status quo of the series is for so long when that status quo is dropped uh, like 13 episodes in once Mendo shows up. I think that's important because it is, um, you are right in the fact that Shinobu doesn't become less of a character. She in fact becomes more of her own character Mm -hmm. uh, when she kind of actually gets away from Ataru a bit. But also uh, it is, pretty important to the first, you know, 10 or 15 episodes of the series, that love triangle. So, because it does kind of set up the dynamic of those three main characters. And it is, even though it's dropped pretty quickly, as you said, it's still really important to kind of set up what Urusei Yatsara is. Mm-hmm. And although a lot of what Urusei Yatsara is, is, you know, everything resets after every episode, there is small amounts of character continuity uh, and Shinobu probably is the best example of that for, you know, someone who used to love Ataru and then they were kind of, you know, shake on shaky ground because of Lum. And then they basically, Shinobu just loses interest in him after a while. And they yeah. just continue that on. Shinobu has probably the best arc in the series in terms of having a real transformative change from who she is at the beginning to who she is at the end of the series and how her life kind of completely changes. I'd say for the better, she, she's in a much happier place uh, by the end of the series. I think it's very compelling. Uh, And she's such an underrated character because she doesn't get a lot of focal stories on her. But she is always very enjoyable in how she interacts with other characters and in various stories. And so I like seeing how her role and how her status in the group, in the ensemble cast, shifts as the series progresses. Because unlike other characters, where the dynamic and the relationships are kind of the same throughout. Shinobu's relationship to other characters changes the most as the series goes on. Yeah, it does, because she really does like Ataru at the beginning, and Lum is a nuisance, and then she kind of falls off Ataru, and then she goes on to Mendo. And then even after a while, she just kind of admits that, yeah, Mendo is just a pretty rich face. And, yeah. you know, he's not that much better than Ataru is. In, in fact, some way he's worse. And I think by the end of the series, at least in the manga, um, you know, she's officially dating Inaba. She is. Uh, from the Dreammaker episodes, I should say. Or the OVA, I think, in the in the anime, that is. And she is a, kind of a, a much happier, more well-rounded and less violent person because she is incredibly strong. <laughs> and, you know, and of course that strength only really comes out when she's really super, super angry. But I think she toned down a lot of that by the end of the, by the, end of the series. I think she retains that element 
of her character, but she doesn't have to be as frustrated or angry towards the end of the series when she's in that relationship with Inaba. Because mm. then she's kind of found like what she was looking for. I think it's very important to emphasize with Shinobu that she is also the character who I think most embraces the central conflict of the series and then grows from it, which is maturing into adulthood and leaving behind kind of the status quo of childhood and this is the whole conflict with Ataru Lum is like that cat and mouse game of keeping the status quo and not really truly embracing progressing the relationship to the next level Shinobu has a realization that the status quo the way things are now is not what she wants and this is shown in Naba the Dream Maker she envisions a future in which Everything is the same as they are when they're adults, like older relationships to each other, like the entire dynamics. Nothing has changed when they're adults. She makes that future because she thinks, what would that be like? Would I be satisfied with that? And she sees it and she's like, no, I thought this would be what I would want, but this isn't what I want. I do want my future to be different. I do want change. And so that is what allows her to kind of break free of like just staying the same loop, the same repetitive thing of like, uh, keeping these relationships that she has with Ataru Lum Mendo stagnant. And then she like kind of breaks free from that and she embraces something new. She gets into a relationship with Anaba. And so she takes that step towards adulthood that the other characters are still struggling with admitting to the sums that they have to do at some point. And, you know, Takahashi herself, like her, the ending of the series, the why it's not explicit that Lomonotaru have moved on to the next step is because she wants the characters to enjoy their childhoods. But I think it's so valuable and so compelling that Shinobu is this example, this one singular example of a character, and because she is one of the central trio introduced at the beginning of the series, it's so important too, that she is that character who takes that step past who she was at the beginning, and past, like, what her life is now, and she embraces change. And, like, that's a huge thing. It's a powerful message because mm. she has been there since the start and she has seen all of, and she's gone on many of these kind of wacky adventures with everyone. Mm. And she, you know, she is often the voice of reason in this, mm. uh, in a lot of their adventures, um, despite her temper. And I think, um, Shinobu in, I think the, the kanji for her name can kind of mean, uh, calm and patient, mm-hmm. which if you look at Shinobu, before she gets angry, you might think, yeah, yeah, that totally is her. But also she's got this other aspect to her personality where she just gets angry and super violent. Yeah. And uh, which is a contradiction, which is a, a clever part on Takahashi, I think, because Ataru, before Lum came along, obviously did need someone of that caliber to sort mm-hmm. of match him in that space, I think, because you couldn't, no normal person could happily date Ataru. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be kept on some sort of leash, obviously. Most definitely. So we'll just talk about the um, the early anime. Um, now, as you mentioned before, the seasons kind of had two episodes within one episode. So there yes. would be uh, a kind of a 15 or you know 12-minute story, then there'd be an ad break and the eye catch, and then you'd come back and there'd be a different story. And this happened for about the first 22 episodes or so, I think. 21. 
Yes. 21, yep. And then I think that the first episode where they destroy the matchmaking party, uh, from then on, they're all just one episode. And I think the, the creators were kind of going back and forth on this a little bit at the time. Like, they weren't sure what the format should be because you can basically edit one of Takahashi's manga and mm-hmm. fit it out down into like a, you know, a 10, 12 minute story. Yeah. And I that mean- works pretty well. But if you take one of her chapters or even a few of them and flesh it out, then there's all of a sudden there's got to be a lot more writing done, mm-hmm. you know, from the, the series creators. They've got to start adding a whole bunch of things in. And I think uh, Takahashi would probably have final approval on all of that stuff if she, you know, was that deep into the production. I'm sure she, she saw the scripts in any case. I don't imagine she could have enough time to approve the scripts because anime production is done on such a tight turntable and doing a weekly manga series is so much of a time investment very, too. Very, very demanding, yeah, demanding. I mean, she would probably be able to get approvals maybe on some things. Like for the films, I'm sure she would be more heavily she involved She definitely with that. had approvals on the films, mm-hmm. um, although she didn't have as much say as she wanted to on those. The thing is that if you can't start doing a 15, two episodes within an episode, you're going to run out of um, Takahashi's original works a lot quicker mm-hmm. than you would otherwise. And then that's when the writers are going to have to step in and do these sorts of things with the characters uh, from basically from scratch, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I'm sure a lot of people wanted to do that and embrace it. But there was also something to be said about, you know, using the original stories and like people wanted to see these characters be brought to life in an animation in certain scenarios. So there was a a bit of give and take there. Most definitely. And it's interesting, like, this change in format. I do wonder, like, at what point the decision was made that, yeah, we need to take this into a half-hour format. I think this is just naturally what the writers, what Oshi as a director really want to skew towards because that would give them more creative freedom to tell these stories how they want. Whereas, while you can easily tell most of Yurisayatra's stories as adapted from the manga, you know, within these 11-minute constraints, because you're only taking a 15-page chapter, for the most part, and turning that into 11 minutes, and that's, you know, 15 pages. There can be a lot that happens in some of those stories in 15 pages, but sometimes it's not enough for, like, a full half hour. Which is why even when the show shifts into that half-hour format, you will have episodes that take two chapters and blend them together to make that half-hour story. And in some episodes, it's easier to tell than others that these are two different stories that they've just merged together. So it was definitely, I think, more on the idea that they wanted just the the creative freedom to have this be a continuous story throughout one episode than have it be two different halves and have that be more episodic within a singular episode i was just gonna say um this was a kind of a breakout series as well so mm-hmm. i think there was a lot of experimentation going on in the you know in how far you could stretch these stories out mm-hmm. but interestingly like we look at television now uh, anime now and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of shows every season and they fill all sorts of genres it wasn't particularly like that back then they did have a lot of anime um, but a lot of it was kind of skewed towards younger audiences or specifically sci-fi audiences 
there was some going on, um, but it wasn't as much as you'd like to think it is. And this was kind of more of a um, a comedy, romance, sitcom sort of feel, which was mm-hmm. a fairly new concept of the time, especially using music in the way that they did and uh, and adapting a manga, while not surprising. Uh, you know, this uh, the manga was three years old by the time this came out. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting to see them kind of experiment and try and find where they were and that's one of the reasons this this show ran so long is because it just kind of came became a staple of people's viewing habits and then mm-hmm. as the 80s rocked on and you know and Japan was very very wealthy at the time they they started branching out more and making more of these animes and more kind of different sorts of flavors you know and kind of mixing and matching a lot of that stuff i can't speak because i was in there to know like how people watch the series but i imagine it was a family viewing experience because this had a 7 30 p.m time slot and that's prime time that's something that families can watch together so i'd imagine that part of the appeal of the show and part of its longevity is that it was able to hit both adult and younger viewers and entertain them simultaneously yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Is because it it had such a broad appeal, and you know, adults could watch this show as well. And Lum is recognised by many, many, many generations. Um, you know, the 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 baby boomers who saw this back in the who maybe read it back in the seventies, and then had kids in the eighties, and the the Gen Xs, and then you know, people like us, the millennials. Um, technically, I'm a millennial, I think. Uh, came along later and kind of caught up with it when it was released over in the West. So it's said that Lum is, you know, probably one of the top 10 most recognizable anime characters, even if you don't, not 100% sure what show she's from, you recognize the character as Lum. Mm -hmm. I mean, her character design is just so striking that it is memorable. It's seeped into the popular culture. And even if you've never watched Yurisu Yatsu, you've seen... Lum as a character referenced in other anime, probably. Like, you've seen that character design just seeps through the popular culture and be imitated or outright paid homage to in other works. Yeah, Lum has a lot of quote-unquote cameos in a lot of other popular <laughs> manga um, before and since. I think there's uh, there's even one in um, Detective Conan from memory as yeah, well. Yeah, so there's a pretty great one. It's because there's a character called Rum in Detective Conan, and there's a scene <laughs> where, like, Conan's asking Ihybra, do you know who Rum is, who this member of the Black Organization is? And she's like, Lum from Yurisayatsu? And it's like, no! <laughs> it's, it's a good scene. <laughs> that definitely tickled me as a fan of both series. And, yeah, another one reference that I uh, like that, that happened recently was, like, Yoshiro Tagashi uh, was a big fan of Yurisayatsura. And like in a chapter of Hunter Hunter a couple of years ago, there was like a character design that was just basically Lum. It was like a character who is like directing people on the ship they're on. The name escapes me, like the big whale that they're taking to the dark continent. And it was, it was Lum. <laughs> the face, the hairstyle. <laughs> it was just, I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, Togashi, you, Wow. I love Lum appearing in a Shonen Jump manga. <laughs> That's that pretty is, great. That that is that is something of a dichotomy, although, <laughs> you know, they, they have a fairly a fairly healthy relationship between uh, the like the Shonen magazines, like and of course 
Lum appeared in Shonen Sunday, so she gets referenced there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but occasionally you'll you'll see her in other things. Uh, one of my favorite anime cameos is actually from um, Otaku no Video, yeah. which is a, a, a Gainax one where someone is actually cosplaying as Lum. And it's a it's a pretty brave cosplay, I gotta say, <laughs> going out in public in it was essentially just a bikini. Yeah, so I've, and I've seen it I've seen it many times before, and it's it's always I'm just so I'm, so, I'm always so happy to see it, and there's so many different people of um you know different genders, different shapes, different sizes being able to do this, and it's always magnificent whenever you see it. It's always so well done. Mm-hmm. I love seeing people embrace their love for the series, and it touches me that the character means so much to them that they cosplay her. Hmm. And the anime, like the the manga, was popular and. It should be said that the um, you know it was very very popular and remained popular for a very long time and still gets reprints as as it's happening in the English world today. Um, but the anime really did help that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the anime was such a, a breakout hit and became such an iconic image of Lum and you know from the eighties when uh, and it's also a bit of a nostalgia thing because as I said before Japan was so rich and you know so much was going on back in the nineteen eighties that a lot of people look back on that time and say, oh, things were so great back then. Things were so wonderful. Everyone was so rich. <laughs> Lum kind of represented that culture in a lot of ways, this kind of freedom of expression, you know, just uh, being lighthearted and wearing a bikini and, uh, and you know, being on television every Wednesday night. Yeah, I can definitely see that as like a artifact of its time like something symbolic of a bygone era that may have never actually existed but in your mind in your nostalgia you envision it as the ideal place in time where everything was great that's true and yeah it we're having it on wednesdays and I'm, i th- think it may have shifted around a little bit as the series went on but wednesdays at seven thirty does seem like such a a sitcom prime time sort of thing to me because mm-hmm. when I was growing up in the in the nineties in Australia, that was always the day. Wednesday was always the day that they would show new Simpsons episodes on, mm-hmm. and that was seemed to be the day that everyone was home and they would get massive ratings for that. So I'm not sure what it was like in the, in the states uh, or anything like that, but it was always a Wednesday, seven thirty in Australia. You know, you'd get all your homework done, your chores, and you sit down and you watch the Simpsons. So I guess it's the same sort of mind frame here. That, you know, it's kind of a prime time. This is chosen because people will sit down and watch anime at this time. Yeah, I mean, Simpsons was that in the 90s in the US back in the day. Now, I wasn't there for it because I got into Simpsons when I was at the proper age to, which would be early 2000s. But Simpsons, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, from anecdotal evidence, that is how you were describing, like, that was how it was in the US, that whenever the new Simpsons would come on, that was like dedicated viewing, a ritual viewing experience for families across the States. Like everything would stop and they would plop down in front of the TV and watch the new Simpsons. Cause like it was that big of a deal. I imagine that Yurisiyatsura, perhaps maybe not to the same extent as something like the Simpsons was in America, but I would imagine that it was probably that kind of ritual viewing experience for many families in Japan in the 80s as well. I'd say so, yeah. It, it's, it's definitely popular amongst, uh, you know, kind of not – it was kind of made for kids with kids in mind so kids can understand, but but also teenagers 
and anyone who would just flick it on, flick on the TV and they go, oh, yeah, this looks like fun. I'll watch this. Mm-hmm. I'd say in Japan, I'm not even sure whether you'd call it a cult status because it's not. It was very popular at the time, and it still continues to be well-known today, except it hasn't been repeated on any of the main channels for quite some time. I'm sure that mm. it's on some of the pay channels, or it might be on some of the um, the rural, more rural affiliate networks. I'm not 100% sure on that. It's kind of a weird dichotomy, because people still love this series, but it's actually quite difficult to get your hands on in Japan. Hmm. at least legally. Japan does come down pretty hard on people just putting things up on YouTube. If it's, you know, <laughs> if it's in on Japanese YouTube, it's actually difficult to find some theme songs, actually, without them getting taken down occasionally. Wow, yeah. that's harsh. It's pretty, it's pretty intense uh, because they just want to sell the records. They want to sell the CDs mm-hmm. and they want to sell the uh, the DVDs. And because people... Some of these studios and rights holders just kind of squat on the rights and then they'll do a a re-release for, you know, hundreds of dollars and they'll sell out of that really quickly and they'll have made their money. So uh, Urusei Atsara is a a prime example of that. It would be really good if they released it again on Blu-ray because even though it doesn't have English subtitles, I would definitely jump on that if I saw it in a store. But the last time I saw it, it was for $1,000. Wow. So... Yep, 100,000 yen. Yeah, I, when I've seen it around on eBay, I've also, like, if you get all the sets together, it would run $1,000. And, like, sometimes I look at that, those eBay listings, and I'm like, well, oh, it's tempting. But, the, but you know, I don't have $1,000 to spend. No, I, I would, my wife would kill me if I spent $1,000 <laughs> on, on Blu-rays. Oh, even in the U.S., talk about the availability of yourselves in the US. It was distributed over here by Animago in the early 90s. They put it out on VHS tapes uh, and they bundled with them like these very extensive liner notes that you can still find for the first couple of DVDs slash, you know, first couple of releases they did of it. You can still find PDF copies of that on their website if you visit it but they don't have it for every volume of the series because they released Yurisayatsura in 50 VHS tapes and later DVDs, which would have three to four episodes on them piece. And then altogether, that would be 195, then 195 episodes. Later in the early 2000s, they put the series all on DVDs and then the DVDs would have like, box sets of five DVDs a piece, and so there are ten of those box sets out there. And then there's, of course, DVDs for the OVAs, where they would bundle two OVAs to a DVD. And then they also had most of the movies, except for Beautiful Dreamer, which was by Central Park Media. They had that uh, for some weird licensing mishap that they had all the Movies except for Beautiful Dreamer. Oh, no. (laughs) The best one. (laughs) It was was very interesting how somehow that licensing right turned out. But, yeah, so Anime Go had basically the rights to the entire series. And so they put it on VHS first in the 90s, early 2000s. They put it out on DVD. There were all these box sets that had bundles of DVDs. And then in, it was not, you know, relatively, I guess it wasn't long ago, but it was long ago. It was like 
in the early 2010s or late uh, aughts, they basically let their license to it lapse, and so the DVDs all went out of print. And so now there's no place for you to buy the series through a normal distribution site. Like, you can't get it off Amazon. Like, new copies. It's not in print anymore. You have to buy secondhand copies off eBay or, you know, from sellers who are using Amazon or something. And those can be pretty pricey depending on the DVD. And I only have a couple of the DVDs that I've managed to get from good deals. I've got the first four DVDs and then I've got uh, the box set of DVDs 11 through 15. Unfortunately, only volume four of my DVDs still has the liner notes because, again, these are secondhand copies. But mm. at least those are PDF. Those are available on the site. I have the PDFs. But yeah. Well, it's so- good that it did get an actual full release because, um, yeah. like, it was never released that way in Australia. In fact, it never really got a release at all in Australia. Everything had to be imported either from the US or from uh, the UK, who may have had a different uh, distributor. I can't remember. But the um, the liner notes I have for my very few VHS copies, I still have them. And mm-hmm. the liner notes are absolutely fascinating and definitely worth a read, uh, no matter what form you find them in. Uh, and I've got a, a couple of couple of the movies on VHS. I've got, uh, I think I've got um, one, two, and four and six, I think. Interestingly, the very first time I saw the fifth movie, which is officially speaking canon and the last episode or how the series ends, Mm -hmm. which is actually just called, literally called the final chapter, Mm -hmm. I got a cheap Chinese knockoff of it. From a store in, uh, I think in Sydney that, you know, just had a whole bunch of bootleg manga. And I went, oh, wow, wow. I haven't seen this yet because there was just no way to get it. Mm-hmm. And I bought it and it did have English subtitles on it. And they got, they got the names so weird and mixed up. <laughs> they called Ataru Moroboshi Don Stars. Wow. And I just, every time it came up with, oh my God, what are you going to do, Don Stars? I just <laughs> burst out laughing. This is like the Chinese fan translations I've heard of One Piece, where they call Usopp Liar Boo. <laughs> what the heck? How do you come up with a name like that? It's pretty magnificent, though. I kind of I kind of appreciate it just for its bootlegginess, but I really mm-hmm. need to buy like an actual copy of that movie at some point. Thankfully, kind of round everything out. the DVDs of the films are pretty easy to get off of ebay like they don't go for too high a prices because i think there are a lot of them printed so you can usually find someone selling them for like a reasonable ten dollars so that's at least very fortunate but like especially for later dvds of the tv series the prices for those dvds can go very high like a hundred dollars for one dvd which, oh, again, geez. only has three, four episodes. So, yeah, I mean, people really know the value of what they have because the series is so hard to find now. Yeah, I guess as we go on in time, there's going to be more Urusei Atara fans, um, which is sounds a bit strange, but because of the the nature of the show and just the way that anime has become more and more popular in the West, especially over the past 20 years, 
people are starting to go back and look at some of these earlier classic series. And something like Ranma is available a lot more readily to the public than Urusei Atari is. So they might see Ranma and get into that and go, oh, I want to see the rest of these works. Oh, Inuyasha, that's pretty easy to get. And then they look at Urusei Atari and go, man, this is fantastic. But it's actually really hard to get a hold of. I'm assuming at one stage <laughs> there probably will be some venture will probably start up and, and concentrate on streaming retro anime over the internet, I suppose, like Crunchyroll or, um, or one of those other uh, streaming services do. But who knows what the rights issues are like now? Because I'm not even sure who holds the rights in Japan, whether they even want to sell it to a foreign audience. Uh, the Animigo translation might not be available just to take and reuse, so you might have to retranslate everything again. And 194 episodes is very daunting. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned the whole get into Takashi's works to Ranma, then Yasha Den discovery. That's literally my story. Is that I got <laughs> I've heard into that story Ra- many times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so lots of people have told me that that's how they found out about Rusayatara is because they saw Ranma or, Inuya- or Inuyasha first, and then they explored the rest of the works. Yeah. And then they went back and saw the original and kind of went, I want to know more about this. And then, you know, it's kind of like what I did because I read the manga first and then I found a copy of one of the VHSs. And I was very lucky with the VHS that I got actually because it, uh, as well as the, some of the early episodes, it actually had, uh, what was called the spring special. Mm-hmm. And the spring special was kind of like a, a 45 minute kind of featurette that had their trip to Nara uh, and where they meet the female ninja. Mm-hmm. And it also had like a series overview up until that point. So the first kind of 20 episodes. Yeah, that spring special was aired between episodes 21 and 22. And yep, it was basically kind of like the dividing point from when it switched from the two 11 minute segments per episode format to the single half hour format so you kind of use that special as like a buffer for that transition which was which is a great idea Mm -hmm. and the uh it even has an advertisement a safety advertisement on there of uh telling people to be careful of your carp streamers (laughs) so carp streamers are kind of these cylindrical kites that you can put up on the top of poles and it's very windy in Japan in spring. So these kind of carp streamers just kind of flow in the wind and look like carps swimming in the sea. It's a lovely effect. And this, this, um, this kind of 30 minute spot, uh, 30 second uh, advertisement was saying, look, we all love carp streamers. Don't put them up near power lines. You idiot. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's a, it's a wonderful little piece of like, of, uh, safety. Um, that they they have on the end of those. Because I reckon back in the 80s, that used to happen a lot in, in Western cartoons. There'd be like a moral of the day or, you know, Inspector Gadget used to have these things at the end saying, you know, always clean up your toys when you're finished with them. Vaccinate your children. Don't drink and drive. And that literally, that was actually one of the, the Inspector Gadget episodes <laughs> where he gets drunk and drives a car. So look that up. It's actually true. Wow. Uh, so how about we, we talk about now about um, the differences in the anime as the anime went on? Because, you know, it, it, the animation style did change and the, the overall tone of the series did change from the first episode to, you know, the 194th episode. Most definitely. Because Yurisiyatsu 
you know, it's a long running anime. There are different creative staff who come in and out of the project, but also individual episodes will have their own episode directors who have their own distinctive style. And they'll also have different writers attached to each episode. So episode to episode, things can look very different. But also the character designs do get more refined and they change as the series goes on. So in the first 21 episodes, we have more simpler, more cartoony designs. There's very minimal shading used. So very kind of single tone designs. So things look a lot like, I hesitate to say flatter. Because there's still a lot of nice detail animation. But it does look more simplistic compared to episodes towards the end of the series. Where you have a lot more detailed character designs that are... The characters look a little taller. They have like more nuanced line work to indicate their shapes and their bodies and all that. They have uh, more complex shading on them generally and in general as the series goes on the directors employ more artistic liberties to make episodes stand out in visually interesting ways i think that's right well they were kind of doing a lot of experimental stuff and in terms of the character designs they're very much based off takahashi's work and a lot of the facial expressions that they use especially in the first 20 episodes are almost kind of mirror for mirror about how Takahashi would draw the, the you know, Lum's angry face or Ataru's kind of goofy face. But after a while, they kind of spread their wings a bit and they're able to take a, a lot more liberties with the animation style, which is definitely a good thing. And we've mentioned, uh, we've mentioned Oshi before um, as the series director. Mamoru Oshi obviously went on to direct um, Ghost in the Shell, so he's... Yeah. Yep, Pat Labor, the first movie, not the second, I don't think, from memory. Well, he also did the TV series. Like, that Mm. project was, uh, he was very heavily involved in it. So he was, he directed, um, or was the overall uh, production director for the first 106 episodes. So the majority, um, and, and especially, you know, the first two seasons there, he was heavily, heavily involved. And he directed the first two movies as well. Uh, he was not happy with the way the first movie kind of panned out, but that's Takahashi's favorite one because she thinks it's the most uh, accurate to the characters. Um, but he loved the second movie, and uh, it we all kind of consider that a bit of a masterpiece nowadays, but it was actually quite confusing for people to look at back in the day when that uh, movie first came out. Mm-hmm. So after that, uh, who took over? It was uh, Kazuo, Kazuo Yamazaki. Yamazaki. Mm-hmm. Mm. And he had a bit of a different style again, although he did kind of mirror Oshi's work to some extent to keep the flow of the series going. But he took a bit more liberties um, with his own style, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. I mean, Oshi really made the show cater to his own sensibilities in pretty much both the writing and artistic aspects. Like, the style of humor that Oshi and the staff of the anime employ is focused more on pseudo... uh, They like pop culture references specifically to sci-fi writers and movies, contemporary Japanese television shows, and anime and manga series. 
they sprinkle that stuff into the anime a lot. And they also are a really big fan of characters going these big impassioned speeches that are pseudo intellectual, but they're just rambling about these ridiculous ideas in this over the top way and treating like they're mad ramblings with gravitas. And that is a thing that Oshi really likes to employ with the characters, them going on these big crazy rants and then screaming out impassioned ideals and ideas and then he also likes these psychological ideas where he plays with what are dreams or like what is reality he likes to pose these questions and then kind of think about it in a really serious contemplative way so he he likes that stuff more than he likes the slapstick rom-com stuff that was the manga and so as the series going he increasingly tries to skew the show more in that direction especially in the anime original episodes yeah and that's a very good point there because the anime episodes um which were basically written from scratch you know really did have to use these characters in a way that was very different to the manga, and luckily he'd already put the the groundwork in to kind of use these characters in a slightly different way, because the the manga was so focused on Lum and Ataru, he could use some of the other characters and kind of given a bit more of a different personality. And Ataru's mother is kind of a good example of that. She even gets her own episodes. I think it's in the second season. I want to say where she's having a dream within a dream within a dream yeah. about. Earth being attacked and her going shopping and um and throughout the entire series she's never actually given a name like you don't actually find out what her no, name she's is just Mrs. Moroboshi. she's just always a Tyree's mother <laughs> yeah but that episode you mentioned episode seventy eight uh whoa mother of love and banishment that is one of my favorite episodes because Tyree's mom both in the manga and anime is one of my like favorite underrated characters but also that episode is very interesting to watch it's very well directed it, i think it explores the character of Ms. morboshi in a very compelling way but also it's very interesting to watch the episode and see oh this is the rough draft for beautiful dreamer this is oshi first exploring these ideas about the thin line between dreams and reality and then kind of this self-existential crisis about what is the life I'm living and like, am I stuck in just this status quo that I cannot escape from? Like, what am I living this life for? Like all these ideas that are later expounded upon beautiful, beautiful dreamer. That's all in this single episode. And it's very interesting to look at that episode and see, wow. So this is, Oshi kind of, kind of playing around with these concepts that he's going to expand into his big, like, kind of artistic statement to, you know, kind of fight back against what only you was as this, what I think Oshi felt was, oh, this is like pandering to the fans. This is like kind of fluff, but no, I'm going to make Beautiful Dreamer this big movie that'll have things to say, darn it. And yeah, it's kind of just funny to, to kind of look at that episode and see, wow. This is this is him seeding the ground for things he'll do later on. He did. He really did. He, and he, you know, to be fair, he laid the groundwork for that, and it, it paid off for him. And of course, he went on to do Ghost in the Shell as well, which also explores a lot of those ideas of of, of self and reality. 
So he obviously had something in mind, uh, and a lot of the really early ones, uh, the episodes of the anime, did have some more of a goofiness to them, more of a kind of a, a Looney Tunes, yeah, especially sort of Tex Avery, um, Chuck Jones sort of uh, aspect to them, where the, the characters did have these larger-than-life facial expressions, and when they got hurt, they got hurt in a very comical sort of way where they'd kind of twitch a bit afterwards, although it would be completely blackened by Lum's electricity. And I do love those sort of touches because although Takahashi did all of that really, really well in the manga, uh, it's difficult to show someone right after the effect, like twitching or falling down or, mm. you know, like being uppercut and going up in the air for like a full five seconds before landing back down and getting electrocuted, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do love the love the violence in there, and a lot of it's directed towards Ataru, and a lot yeah. of the time he deserves it. Oh yeah, the animators definitely employ great visual gags that accentuate slapstick comedy as well. And you're right that earlier episodes skew closer to what the tone of the manga was, and they start to go back in that direction a little bit when Yamazaki takes over. But we'll get to him in a little bit, but. Like, the yeah, Oshi yeah. run of the series, that kind of looms over the anime and people's perception of it in a way that I kind of want to talk about. Because sure. whenever people talk about the Yurisiatsu anime, they talk about Mamoru Oshi's run, his contributions to it, and it's like, though, that amazing first 106 episodes. And they look at Yurisiatsu and... Think of it as, oh, this is a footstep in Oshi's career, where then he would become this great auteur anime filmmaker and do all these other projects and rise to greatness. And I feel like there's just this very dismissive quality, I think, to how people look at the Yurisiatsu anime and treat Oshi's run as like the only part of the series that has value. The only, like that first half is like the only notable part or the only part that matters because Oshi was the one who directed it and I'm like the Kasuo Yamazaki run is just as good and all those things that you like about the Oshi run in terms of like weird experimental episodes and exploring these kind of uh out there philosophical ideas that is so out of the ordinary for a family show in a 7.30 time slot that is ostensibly, you know, for mainstream audiences, that's still in the Yamazaki run. Oshi maybe trailblazed it and made that the identity of the show, but, like, it's not like that stopped when Yamazaki took over. And his half of the series is more consistent, in my opinion, and it has just as many classic episodes and entertaining episodes. And, you know, one thing that Yamazaki's run doesn't have that Oshi's run has is that Yamazaki's one doesn't have clip show episodes, you know? <laughs> but I'm just saying, and not that, you know, clip show episodes happen because of variety of reasons. I'm not saying that, oh, that's the reason why, like, Yamazaki didn't have clip show episodes. That's why he is more skilled as a director. I'm saying that, you know, it's not like every episode of Oshi's one was like this 
superior, perfect episode of television, and Yamizaki's run wasn't. It's just that, you know, Oshi's run is really good, and Yamazaki's run really, really good. The entire 195 episode series and the 12 OVAs, all of that is good stuff, and I just feel very annoyed that people look at the first 106 episodes and think, oh, that was an amazing run, that was the show, the other episodes, uh, that the show goes downhill after that. It's like, what are you even talking about? I think a lot of that actually has to do with um, with basically just fatigue. Exactly. Because, you know, 194 episodes is a lot of episodes, and it is um, yeah. it is the longest running of any of the Takahashi-based animes, yeah. although I think, you know, Yasha did get up there, but didn't quite get up to In, the yeah. same Inuyasha episode count. Yeah, falls short, which is surprising and amazing, because Inuyasha is... By far, Takashi's longest manga. It is 20 volumes longer than Urusa Yatsura, but the anime oh adaptation falls short. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree that I think it really is because you start to maybe get fatigued of the show the more episodes you watch of it. But yeah, I, I personally did not have that feeling because I, you know, I'm very thoroughly invested in the show, but also probably helps that I watched it after reading the higher manga and then I watched it in a piecemeal order starting with like my favorite stories and working my way around to the rest but at the same time I was like I, having seen every episode of the anime like once or twice at this point I really do not understand the perception that the show loses steam or like somehow becomes less good when Yamazaki takes over because it's just as good. I also don't like when people credit Urusiastra's success purely to Mamoroshi because for one thing I look I'm a big fan of Oshi and like his contributions to Urusiastra and like his voice that he had to it is very unique and remarkable and definitely a large part in what makes the show like so iconic but at the same time like there was so many talented staff that was a part of this project that brought it to life that is responsible for making it as incredible as it is. You had incredible artists and character designers like Akemi Takada working on the show. You had people who would get their foot in the door on the show and then go on to become like incredibly prominent and important figures in the industry like Kazuro Furuhashi, director of Doro uh this season which is you know one of the most talked about anime right now is he got his start in Yurusa Yatsura basically like working on that sh on the show and then he went on to become the director of several acclaimed anime like he did the Kenshin anime he did the Hunter Hunter 99 anime you have so much incredible talent working on the show that is responsible for making it what it is not just this one person I think that Oshi is well yeah, he is kind of a little overcredited uh, and yeah. and some of it is is deservedly so um but also in Japan the it's a little bit different like the the way we talk about it here in the west is because we kind of from a more of a case study standpoint. Yeah. We know much more about Oshi, whereas from talking to fans in Japan, although they kind of know who he is, or they, you know, certainly do because of Ghost in the Shell and, and Pat Labor, they also don't really kind of think of the Urusei Yatsara episodes in those two halves or even yeah. in seasons, as I mentioned before. It is kind of one holistic thing. Yeah. And, you know, some episodes are strange, some are 
you know, completely separate from the manga. Some are based off the manga. Some of them are combinations. And I think the, um, the overall feeling is in Japan that it was a great series, but it wasn't, it wasn't split in the way that we talk about it, like in the West, because we've had, uh, you know, just so much more time to study and rewatch these episodes over and over again and discuss all of these things. And there are hardcore fans in, in Japan who do the same thing, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, um, it's kind of the, the whole series is seen more holistically over there and isn't kind of split up in the same way. Yeah. And it's also important to mention that the technology, because this went from, you know, the early eighties to the, um, to the mid to late eighties is that the technology in the 1980s for animation improved exponentially. And we're not talking, you know, there weren't a whole lot, a lot of digital effects or anything, but they did start to make, you know, waves in the way that they produced anime and how quickly they could produce it and the quality in which they could produce it as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the show, I think, looks better and better as it goes on because definitely they have more access to resources that allow them to make the production process smoother and also allow them to refine the art a little bit more. Though I will say the animation, even in the early episodes with the simpler character designs, the animation is still very good. Even if there is more use of choppy or limited scenes, like there are still some really incredible bits of animation in the, like even the first 21 episodes. I think a lot of the background animation there is very, very striking. Like mm-hmm. they will do these these kind of big um, set piece paintings of like a spaceship coming down to Earth or like Lum's ship in the first episode coming down. And then, of course, they just animate the characters on top of that. Yeah. And sometimes, the, you know, as it's, it's, it's well known that I'm a bit of a, an animation cell collector and I've, I've got some from the first uh, 21 episodes and I'm very fortunate to have them. Um, but some of these set pieces at the back, some of these matte paintings, I look at those and I just go, I really want one of those. And God knows what happened to it because only one would exist. But I just hope they didn't destroy it. I hope that's sitting in someone's collection somewhere because they're wonderful, wonderful pieces of art. Oh, most definitely. I would love to, I would love them to make an art book of the show that would have like some of the background, uh, backgrounds from it and like just all, sorts of incredible art they made for it because like the show has such beautiful artworks throughout and the backgrounds especially are so underappreciated in how incredibly detailed and beautiful they are but again uh, just to get back to my oshi point it's like again i don't like this idea of people raising up oshi to be like, the reason why Yurisayatsura is good. I love Oshi's filmography. He's one of my favorite directors. I really dislike how people, like, dismiss Yurisayatsura and what makes it so good by saying, oh, Oshi elevated this rom-com slapstick fair and made it great. I hate that sentiment, and that's what I always feel when people regard the Oshi run and his controversy the series as like the only thing of value or the only thing that makes it valuable. There is this piece, this article written by Daryl Surratt uh, for Otaku USA like in 2010 that I distinctly remember when I was getting into the show and I was like researching stuff about it. I read that article and there's this section of it that I really cannot fathom how anyone could think. And it's this uh, section is like he where he says, 
I know she created it, but I just can't credit Rumiko Takahashi for Yurisayatsura being so great. For despite the fact that many of the TV scenarios were originally in the manga, her characterizations were off. Not only are some of my favorite characters in the series not even in her manga, she made her version of Lom pretty much a psycho hose beast. And then it goes so on from obviously, that. Obviously, that is very cringeworthy to read, isn't yeah. it? That's just, that's, there is someone who has not read all of the manga. No. And there is also someone who just doesn't appreciate a lot of the cultural aspects that Takahashi put into that as well because it's there is some there's some pop culture references there's a lot of mythological references there are a, a lot of things about especially the manga that don't translate so well and that might be one of the reasons that they they stop translating it but there is just a person who just doesn't understand it and prefers to look at the the shiny pretty people moving on the screen yeah i mean i like i like Darius writing and i like at his podcast, Anime World Order, I don't understand his perspective on Yurisayatsura. Like, that's not a... I don't have any harsh opinions on Daryl Surratt himself, but, like, his opinions on Yurisayatsura, I I don't understand. Like, I can respect that he, he enjoys different things about it, but, like, uh, I think it's telling that what he appreciates most is the Oshi contributions. Like, to, and this is, like, representative of perspective that I don't like uh, when people talk about the anime and they talk about, oh, it's Oshi, 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 and like, talk about all the other incredible staff, talk about the Yamazaki run. Yasuo Yamazaki really deserves more appreciation. Like, he is an incredibly interesting filmmaker and director. But again, I do think there is something to be said, though, that there is a different voice for your Seatsura. I think you can really pin that down in the character of Megane, who is a character that Oshi pretty much invented for the show. He's based off a character design. He and the other Lump Scoopers are based off character designs Takashi had in the manga for, like, two volumes worth of chapters, but then, like, did not really do anything with. And then Oshi took those character designs. He gave them, like, personalities that were basically just mouthpieces for his own ideas and what he thinks is funny. And then the, he be, made those into, like, main characters. And I like Megan a, a lot. He is one of my favorite characters in the anime. I'm just saying, but, like, that is very re- representative of, like, the different tone and how Oshi himself saw the series. Like, I, as much as I like Oshi's work, I definitely see that he kind of resented working on what he thought was liked inconsequential fare because it was you know, a sitcom, and he didn't want to be working on a sitcom. He wanted to be working on headier sci-fi uh, stories, which is what he went on to create after your Seatsura. But, and, like, I recognize yeah. that. It's just, I, I and to me, I feel like I like Oshi's contributions to the show because they make it really interesting. I just, I don't think that's all there is to value in the show, and I definitely don't think you can credit Oshi for making the show popular or as good as it is just in of himself because it is a team of people who makes an anime and it's based off a source material sprung from the mind of Rumiko Takahashi. The show does not exist without that manga, without the characters and the story she created. And so I don't understand the line where Daryl Surratt says, you know, so despite my liking the short series of Rumiko Takahashi, 
many of which she wrote at the same time as yours, the opposite to make ends meet. I can't help but think Mamoru Oshii was the one to credit for her rise to superstardom. I think that's pretty insidious to say that Takahashi's career is owed to what Mamoru Oshii did on an anime adaptation of her already very popular work, which is why I got an anime. I don't understand that perspective. I hate it when people dismiss Takahashi, but... Yeah, again, I'm a fan of yeah, Oshi. I'm I don't... just, I hate inflating him to all this importance and then dismissing the contributions of everyone else to the series. That makes sense. So I think great. there's just a bit of a cult personality around him. Oh, most um, definitely. And, and yeah. he is someone who comes out and does a lot of interviews as well and yeah. is happy to talk about the past of his work. So, yeah. as far as people in the West are concerned, they've got something to latch onto there, which they wouldn't normally have. Like, although Takahashi does come out and talk about her work a lot. She has many, many works, uh, and it's not just all about Urusei Yatsura. She's moved on. And so is Oshi as well. And I think one of the things about that is that the you got to remember that this was three years after Urusei Yatsura yeah. um, was created, and a lot had happened. And although it was popular out of the gate, Takahashi was already doing other things. She did other series at the same time as Urusei Yatsura. God knows how she did that. Yeah, she worked <laughs> because... on Mize on a Koku at the same time as Yurisiatsura. She did, was doing both for eight years. It's incredible. Yeah, I don't know how you would do two series at once. And she was even doing the Mermaid series in the 80s as well. Yeah. And that was just her hobby. Like, she literally could not stop herself <laughs> <laughs> from working. And she still can't to this day. She's about to release a new series. Yeah. I understand what you mean about the, the, the cult of Oshi, but... The thing is, like, the, the people might read what has been translated of the Urusei Yatsura manga and say, oh my god, you know, it's all thanks to the anime. But the manga did advance over time as well. It did change. And the style of writing and Takahashi got better at telling stories and better at writing as the, uh, the manga went on. And a lot of people haven't seen the back half of the manga when it does start to uh, focus and even develop a lot of those characters mm -hmm. that were just kind of set pieces for a while. It, it really does go into some more of what makes Ataru tick and, you know, the fact that he has his own sense of morality, which you'd never kind of guess that he does have this his own, if warped, sense of honour and how he treats people and especially women. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to see the differences, and some of those kind of aspects were explored in Yamazaki's run as well, towards the the back half of the of the anime, because they started using some of Takahashi's uh, stories and started to focus on them quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So, um, how about we how about we do some questions now? Because I think a lot of the questions that we were probably going to ask each other, favorite episodes, <laughs> and um, you know all that sort of stuff, are probably going to be asked in the questions. Most definitely, I, man, it's crazy. There's just so much to say about the anime that we didn't even talk about, <laughs> like the studios, like the interesting story of Kitty Films. There's so much more we have to extrapolate at a later time. Again, the anime is so deep. And even on the subject of Mamoroshi, which I just ranted about for 10 minutes, like actually looking at his voice and what he brought to the series is a subject worth a podcast in itself. So there's just so much more that we'll extrapolate on as the shows go forward. But yes, we'll move on to questions now, though. I think there's something very important we do need to address before we do that, and that's like, yeah. how did we discover the anime? How did we start watching it in the first place? 
That's a really, really good question, actually. And 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 you're right. Like originally in my brain, this podcast was going to be like a three part kind of series. But as we've as we've started recording this, like the the, last, the first episode and now this episode, and uh, we've kind of discussed it a bit more off air. Of course, um, this is going to be kind of more of an ongoing thing. So this today's is basically an overview of the anime and kind of how it developed. And we'll go more of a deep dive, probably into the directors and and maybe into the individual seasons and some of our favorite episodes at a at a later date. I think. Mm-hmm. But how about you go first? How did you how did you discover the anime, and did you discover it before you discovered the manga? As I mentioned on the last episode, I discovered the first opening on YouTube while just randomly searching anime openings on YouTube, and so that's my first exposure to the anime was just seeing the first opening. But again, like I mentioned on the previous episode, I decided to go with the manga because it seemed like less of a time commitment than an anime psychologically. Even though the manga is 36 volumes long, in my mind, I thought I could get through that faster than I could watching 195 episodes, 6 movies, and 12 OVAs. So I read the entire manga and finished it before I started watching the anime. And when I did start watching the anime, I didn't start watching it in order. I watched the first episode and maybe I think the second episode. But then from there, I kind of jumped around. I do actually have distinct memories of while I was reading through the manga, I did check out a few episodes during that period. I distinctly remember that I was watched episode three while I was in my school library just one day, I have a distinct memory of that popping in my head. So there were episodes I was like going and checking out while I was reading through the manga, but like I didn't really start to properly dive into it after I had finished it, which would have been in like May of 2013, just as I was graduating high school. And so then over the summer, uh, that's when I started really getting into it. During that summer, I got through a lot of my a lot of episodes that were based on some of my favorite stories from the series. And then I watched all of the movies and I watched the final movie, the final chapter, like the day before I started college. And I have distinct memories of that, like watching it in my college dorm room. And then it was kind of loud, the audio. So my roommates kind of knocked on my door and said, oh, could you turn it down? And I was like, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I distinctly <laughs> have a memory of that. And so when I think of like, my experience of reading the series and then watching the series, it's like really tied to like the manga was like the twilight years of my high school experience. And then the anime was like the beginning years of my college experience. And so over like the next year, like basically over a a year and a half period, I watched through the episodes of the anime just in a piecemeal faction, just like, whatever episodes I was interested in checking out. And then by the end of the summer of 2014, which I remember distinctly because I went to India uh, for my grandparents' 50th anniversary, wedding anniversary. And it was like during that period where I was in India, where I finally polished off the final couple of episodes of the series that I hadn't seen yet. And so, yeah, I basically... That was my experience of going through the series is that like over a a year and a half period, basically, I watched it just on and off in random order. 
And then uh, since then, I have rewatched several sections of the show. I always try to start in order, but like over the years, like there's been several different places where I I start and then watch a stretch of episodes and then I move on to a different stretch of episodes. So it's like been very random how I've rewatched the series, but I have seen every episode at least once or twice at this point. Uh, some episodes several times over. But I'm very interested in how you have experienced the series AC and like if you have any like really fond memories of cer- discovering certain episodes and watching them for the first time. I do. Um, so as I kind of touched on last episode, I discovered the manga before I discovered the um, the rest of the anime. And look, it's kind of a, a weirder kind of story for me because I discovered the manga uh, when I was in, uh, I think I was like 13 or 14 back in 1994 or 1995. And it was so very hard to get anything back then the the internet was very much in its infancy and getting any sort of video from the internet or anything shared over the internet was um was basically a pipe dream back then so there was kind of nothing on the internet other than these are the facts about the series this is lum these are the kind of few things that we've garnered uh from the animigo releases from the early 90s and uh, after i had collected a few issues of an america and they were being released in um, graphic novel form and also in individual issues back in the mid 90s as well I, I got a couple of those from the local comic book store a friend of mine had an older friend so a friend at school had an older friend who was really into anime and had the first movie on vhs and i begged and begged and begged and begged and begged to try and get my hands on this movie <laughs> uh, because I really, really wanted to see it. And, of course, the first movie is not based on any Takahashi story. It's an original piece. I had limited exposure, and a lot of what I was reading on the internet was basically text files about Lum and about some of the stories, but not the actual stories themselves. So I was, And, you know, this was in the computer labs at lunchtime. So I finally got my hands on this episode and... Back in the back in the mid nineties, I loved television so much that my parents actually really tried to limit my exposure to it because I would just sit there and watch as much as I could. And my mm. my dad ended up instigating this rule where I'm allowed to watch one one hour show per week and one half hour show per day. Whoa! Yeah, so I could watch like maybe The Simpsons. I could w- watch maybe like a one hour sketch comedy show and a week and then the rest of it would just be half an hour a day. And I remember getting this home and I only had it for one night and I watched this and this was my half hour plus one hour. <laughs> and watching this and my dad was just disgusted, absolutely disgusted Aww. at the fact that I was watching this and going, what are you doing? Well, you, you can't watch a movie during the week. Oh, and, <laughs> you know, so I've only got it for one night. So, well, don't do this again. <laughs> it's kind of very, he was a very cranky man back in the mid nineties. <laughs> Which is funny because I ended up going into television media production at university because mm. I just love television so much. Awesome. Um, so basically, I watched the first movie and then there is this very old place in Canberra. It was almost an institution called Impact Records. And they were like an independent record store, which had like all sorts of vinyl and CDs. And they'd been around since the 60s or 70s. 
and they had a um, they had a comic section and they had like a, a like an import t-shirt section and they actually had an import video section there was a whole bunch of like horror movies from from America and Japan and Brazil and all of these things and they did actually have some anime and they did have some of the animigo and I did save up and I bought the uh the animigo release of one of the first ones which I've talked about the one with the spring special on it and that also includes the one where Ataru goes to try and um, wreck the matchmaking party that Lum's tricked into going. Mm. And so I watched that and read the liner notes so, 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 so many times. So I suppose <laughs> I've got a real special, I don't know, connection to owning. And it, that was so hard to get in, in Canberra, Australia in the mid-90s. So I've got a, a real special connection to the episodes on that and, and the spring special as well, because that just encapsulated the first, you know, 15, 20 episodes of the series. And then they had this other nice little story uh, with the, with the female ninja, which was actually very, almost very close to being one-to-one with the, um, in terms of all the story beats for the, uh, for the manga, which I'd read by that point, mm-hmm. or at least that particular story. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. And, you know, as uh, Impact Records eventually closed down and I got a couple of more tapes, although one of them was uh, Lum the Forever, I had a choice between the movies and I chose that one and I chose poorly. <laughs> what was your other choice? Uh, my other choice was the final chapter, actually. Uh. And I really kind of wanted to know more about what happened first before I went to the final chapter. And I think by that <laughs> stage, I'd seen Beautiful Dreamer and I'd seen the first one. So I went, oh, my God, these movies must only be getting better and better. And no, it peaked with Beautiful Dreamer. Well, <laughs> I think we are going to have very interesting conversations about the movies later, too. But, uh... I think we are. I think we have differing opinions on this one. But now, if you want to know more about the series to prepare for the final chapter, Lum Forever definitely uh, ain't it, Chief. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it goes places. It definitely does. <laughs> and you know, there are a lot of deep dives about the fourth movie on a lot of websites, and there's a lot of kind of people trying to interpret what its message is and whether it's actually very deep or actually very dumb. And it's kind of interesting to see people defend the movie, and you know, it's. I'm not saying it has no worth at all, um, but I am saying is that as a as a by that stage it would have been 16 year old who spent a lot of money on this movie. Uh, I was pretty disappointed by it. Exact opposite of me at well, I guess I was <laughs> 17, not 16, but still very exact opposite. So, <laughs> before we go into the questions, I will say one thing, and I did touch upon this last time. I have not seen every episode of Urusei Yatsura, the anime. Whoa! Yeah, it's it's a bit of a shock, and people are going, how dare you talk about this then? The truth of the matter is that um, I always preferred the manga in the first instance, but I also love the anime. But as I started watching the anime, and I've watched a lot of it, especially in the in the past few years, it's gotten to a point now where if I finish watching the anime, that's it. It's done. It's all over. So I could have watched this, uh, you know, back in the 2000s when I was living in Japan. I could have watched this, you know, uh, when I really got back into Urusei Yatsara when I moved back to Australia. But I'm kind of really pacing myself because mm-hmm. after I've watched that final episode. That's done. Yeah, the, the 10 or 12 that I haven't actually seen. I've seen it all. And 
Urusayatsaru is a finite resource. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to make more of this. Takahashi has finished the series. She's moved on. All the animators, they've moved on. And there's, you know, nobody wants to reboot it because it's pretty much been done to 100% of its capacity. There's some stray chapters they could adapt still. Yeah, they that's true. They could make up original stories. If they want they to bring it back, they bring it do... back. They, yeah, I mean, there was an OVA that they did in 2008, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So they did actually do another chapter then, and that did have Kosuke in it as well, which is one of my favorite side characters, who's just really not in the anime at all because of the Lum Stormtroopers. Yeah, Perm basically took over his character. Yeah, and Kosuke is kind of uh, in cahoots with Ataru a lot more. Like, he's he's more genuinely his friend. Yeah, as opposed to the Stormtroopers who despise him and are conspiring to destroy him so they can get with love yeah exactly so with all of that being said did you want to move on to some questions yeah uh, i guess i should also just briefly note like i mentioned like my experience watching series but i didn't say how i watched the series and uh unfortunately yeah i watched the series uh online through illegal means because it's not legally available on streaming which i really hope it will be one of these days but you know, uh, props to, honestly, Kyoko for hosting all the episodes on YouTube way back in the day. Their channel is gone now, so I can mention them without uh, encouraging piracy. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have a loophole are, there. It is a gray area, and it's going into the darker gray sort of area at this stage because the rights have lapsed. But you're, most people are still taking what is ostensibly the Animigo version, the translated version, and sharing that. So, look, I am not going to say for or against how you watch these shows, but I would encourage if you find a way to watch these shows, I would say maybe give it a go. Yeah. That's about all I can legally say, though, unfortunately. <laughs> you can hunt down the DVDs, at least the first couple are relatively inexpensive to get your hands on. And maybe you'll be lucky and your local library or secondhand DVD store might have some copies. Unfortunately, back when I was getting to the show, my library only had the first DVD, and now they have since purged that out of their system, so they don't even have any of that. They don't have any Yurtsayats right now. That's a shame. And there is one other aspect of this which is quite interesting in the fact that in the 80s and 90s, uh, in both Australia and Japan, one of the common things that you would do with your mates would be to do like a, a videotape exchange. So if you, and this doesn't have to be an official thing, it could be just something that you taped off the television, and then you would exchange that for something that your mate had and you'd swap tapes. And if you had friends who were all into the same sort of thing, and I only had a couple, unfortunately, you would trade those tapes around as long as you had something of, you know, tradable value. So that was a much more common thing. We didn't have YouTube, uh, unfortunately, but uh, you did have your mates who may have imported something at great expense or you might have a viewing party or something like that. And I didn't have a whole lot of friends that were into Urusayatsura. But I did have enough where I could get a few more episodes to watch than I could afford at the time. And that kind of sense of community is sadly not as common these days as it used to be in terms of just with your, with your friends. 
uh, because a lot of it's available online and and illegally so, but, you know, them's the breaks. Anime is also just not as niche uh, interest anymore. So you don't That's have true, to yeah. trade tapes or, like, have a pen pal system with people across the country. You'll probably have someone who lives very close by to you who is also into anime who will watch it with you or hang out with you. So it's not as, like, much a necessity for people these days because the community is very easy to access because not only are there Mm. online communities right there at your disposal, but now anime is kind of more of a mainstream accepted hobby area of interest. You can get anime at Walmart or Target. You can buy it online even easier. And I, I can actually remember the time when all the video stores in my area, and this was the late 90s by the time this actually started happening, had an anime section. Mm. And they were the same sorts of, you know, because it would, everything would be split up into uh, foreign films and Australian films and comedy and drama and adventure films. And when they started actually having an, and like it's just a section dedicated to anime, no matter how f- small it was, I was thinking, yes, this is it. This is what I've wanted for the past five <laughs> years. We're finally getting there. And then, of course, in the 2000s, it just basically exploded because of the internet. And I think, and I think it's a great thing. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. As much as I miss the, the, like the swapping of the tapes and the interaction, this is much better. Mm-hmm. And it's much easier to do as well. But, uh, you know, the, the, the whole legality issue around it, I suppose, um, like swapping tapes amongst your friends isn't illegal but swapping files online is kind of much more dubious i suppose you could say yeah i which is a bit unfortunate i wish there was a way to share the urusatsu anime uh in a legal capacity just so much easier which is why i hope mm. one day it gets license rescued i'm still eyeing discotech as a hopeful savior in this regard they've just recently announced they've got all of the city hunter franchise pretty much and awesome. that's a pretty long franchise so if they can do city hunter which i feel like the fan base for city hunter isn't as large as Yurisiyatsura is even here, so I, I have to imagine that if they are willing to take the chance on City Hunter, I'd hope that we might be able to get Yurisiyatsura. But again, there's all sorts of other factors we probably aren't privy to. You know, the cost of actually acquiring the show, and then maybe all sorts of other legalese to deal with. I know, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, some of the studios have shut down as well that were involved in the production, so yeah. there might be some rights squatters there that you might who just might want too much money for it but yeah but who knows so let's get on to the questions we'll actually get on to the questions rather than just saying it this time (laughs) so did you want to start us off yeah we'll start off with some discord comments and questions and so we have a very interesting comment from delicious gears here who mentions that Mm -hmm. they find it very interesting in an episode of Yurisayatsu led to a whole subset of Mamoroshi's works, and then uh, expanding on that, episode 99 introduced the Tachigushi, or fast food masters, which appear in a number of Oshi's other works, and this is indeed true. Basically, episode 99 of Yurisayatsu is kind of like a stealth pilot for this ongoing series or at least these characters will appear in multiple of Oshi's works 
called the Taichi Gushi. They are a big part of the Karobero Saga, a series of films that Oshi directs, and they appear in that series. They also had their own movie, which was a live-action animated hybrid film that Oshi directed and wrote in 2006. So it's kind of interesting that he made his own characters he introduced them in Yurisayatsura and then he since used them in his other works as like a recurring characters and it really reminds me of just like these stealth pilots you know how shows will introduce characters in an already popular existing show you know kind of as a way to really set up a pilot for a show that the producers want to make one such example that i immediately think back to is like the crash nebula episode of the fairly odd parents where it's like the entire episode is basically an episode of what would be this crash nebula show it's like timmy watching literally timmy turner the main character for reference he watches a crash nebula show and it's just it's just the show and the framing device is that timmy turner is watching and it's like so transparently obvious that oh this is just a stealth pilot for this other show that butch hartman <laughs> wanted to make <laughs> and it's all it also reminds me of and I, before anyone comments, yes, I know this episode wasn't made until after the show actually was already made. But like uh, in Space Goes Coast to Coast, the episode where they have prototypes of the Aqua Teen Hunger Force and like originally Aqua Teen Hunger Force, those characters were going to be written at, into an episode of Space Ghost and that would introduce viewers to that. And then the Aqua Teen Hunger Force show would get made. But then, you know, that script was never actually made. But the show was made. And then afterwards, after the show came out and was a hit, they actually made the script of that Space Ghost episode into an episode. But they retained the original character designs for the Aqua Teens. So you have Frylock with legs and a goofier voice. And you have, like, Master Shake. He looks so different. And it's it's very funny. It is very interesting when people try and, like, when directors have an idea and they're kind of stymied by, by their own project. Yeah. And, uh, like, uh, one of my, one of my top 10 series of all time is, uh, is Batman Beyond, mm -hmm. which is indeed a spin-off of the Batman the Animated Series yeah. uh, from the 90s. Incredibly popular. Batman was Batman of the future and you know, was a whole character just created in that universe, a new Batman. And then from that, there was another spin-off called the Zeta Project, which was about a, a, an intelligent android who was being hunted down by the government. And, you know, it's a spin-off of a spin-off, but you could tell even in that episode that they'd given so much character to this one one-shot uh, robot mm -hmm. uh, that they started their own kind of series in the same world, and then they had crossover episodes as well. And I just kind of love it when that happens, when they're able to get their own their own way in. It's kind of like a it is very much a backdoor to yeah. you know, having a bit more creative freedom. Mm. Okay, so what else have we got here? King Rampage asks, uh, which animation style do you guys prefer, Pero or Dean? And uh I think that it's not really a Pero or Dean style. There's actually you have to divide it up into even more specifically the episode directors and then uh, because that it's the look of the show 
is really dependent on what episode director is assigned to the show. So even beyond Perot and Dean, like there's so many variations within those two halves of the series. And uh, so I am really not sure like what like specific style from a specific episode director I like most. I guess if I would, given the choice between the Perot half and the Dean half, I think that the Dean half like overall is more consistent in how polished it looks. And I think the character designs are at their best in that half of the series as well. Like, uh, I think that is when the show is actually the most expressive it is in terms of the character designs. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I would say mid Piro for me would probably be the one that I prefer. Not mm. necessarily, it's not the best in terms of the animation quality, but it's just these, they got past the initial kind of hurdle of making these characters fit into their own world. And then they kind of hit this midpoint where it was very consistent. Everything, you know, was kind of set up according to the series Bible and it hit a lot of the right notes during that time. I think, especially when they started doing full half hour episodes rather than just the, the, the two parters for one app. Mm-hmm. So I, I reckon it would be mid Pero for me. Nice. Yeah, I do think that's a very good uh, section of the show, too. Like, that is a very nice-looking part. Hmm. Uh, Let's read another Reddit. uh, Is this a Reddit question here, this next one? Yeah, this is our only Reddit question. It comes from R.C. Robert, who asks, Chance on Love and Open Invitation are two of my favorite Yuri Siyatra songs. Can you tell me anything about the singer Cindy? And I really don't know much about Cindy other than I like her discography from what i've listened to of it and i I do really love chance on love and open invitation but i don't know much about the history of cindy but i think one thing i'd like to do in future episodes of this show at some point is kind of explore the musical talent behind your and like their contributions and kind of look back at their histories but for now, we I could don't definitely really know. do a deep dive on mm-hmm. that. Uh, and, and one of them is because there's not just the Urusei Yatara and the songs that appeared in the anime. There's also a whole bunch and subset of music and remixes and jazz themes that have become, you know, that people did after the series ended and have just been inspired by the music from the anime itself. Oh, yeah. And there are... If you go to the anime section in a lot of the book-offs, uh, which is like a second-hand shop in Japan, they still have a series, like a, a section in the anime section that says Urusei Yatsura. So they'll have like a Sailor Moon section, as well as just the, you know, the normal, you know, uh, Japanese alphabet. Wow. Yep. Yeah, uh, and you know what? It's always empty now. Oh. <laughs> so to be fair, they might get rid of that section soon, but... I always look for that section, and I have got some some real winners. Uh, part of our our theme, uh, the jazz theme at the top of the show, is from a jazz CD that I got uh, over there, and there are actually three volumes of that of those um, jazz soundtracks, which is really cool. Yeah, the music in this show is so deep in terms of like how much of it was made. Like it's kind of insane when you look up kind of the complete soundtrack and then all the remixes all the additional pieces of media and music made for the show it's like 
there is a lot to discuss in that. That, yeah, we'll definitely dive into that stuff later down the line. But I'm sad for now we don't have much to say about Cindy other than we like her songs too. But hopefully in the future we'll be able to explore her a little deeper and look back at her history. Yeah, I don't really want to go into this question too much because I do have a little bit of information, but I would rather like do a bit more of a um, a deep dive because I actually know a bit of Japanese. I can research these people mm-hmm. in Nihongo, which is very, very helpful <laughs> because there's, you know, we know a lot of English, a, a lot of on this subject matter of Urusayatsara, but there is also a whole swath of things that we just don't know. And it's actually really difficult to find out about. Oh, yeah. But now we'll move on to the Twitter questions, which we have a lot of. In fact, I just added a new one to our document here as we uh, yep, were. I just got that one as well. <laughs> yeah, so I'm so happy that we have such a passionate fan base already. Like, that's really awesome. But that, yeah. Yeah, Lum Squad is, is really something else. They're, they're just, mm-hmm. a, just a great bunch of people who are really, you know, passionate about a show. That hasn't been on now for, uh, what, over 30 years, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got to keep the love of Lum alive. But mm. yeah, uh, let's read off the first And question. so Chikori, uh, who's at Chikori's underscore, it's uh, my friend Michan, who is Sydney-based. Uh, do you think Urusei Yatsara would ever work as a live-action movie or television show? Yeah, I think you could pretty easily like certain in some respects a lot of the appeal of Yurusayatsu is the fact that it is a cartoon so there are things about Yurusayatsu that's not going to translate to live action the inherent slapstick nature of it like some of the goofier characters and character designs like the Dapayas fish people are not gonna look cute in live action you know but at this, like the basic story of your Siatra, like doing Lum, like Lum will not be that hard to do in live action. People are already cosplaying her and looking pretty good in those cosplays. Most of the characters can be realized in live action pretty well. Like you could do it. Do you need to do it? No, I think that the series has more creative freedom in animation. But yeah, I could easily envision it being done in live action. I think you'd need to go on one end of the spectrum or the other. You could do a live action Urusei Atsara show. You could have it more realism based, where the only special effects you'd really need are Lum's flying and her ability to electrocute Ataru. Mm-hmm. You could have spaceships and all that sort of stuff, but it would have to be grounded in a sort of reality where certain thing, certain rules had to apply. Whereas you, the only other way you could really do it, other than, and that would be more of a, a drama than a, a sitcom or a comedy, I think. Mm. It would have to lean that way. Whereas the other way you could do it was, would be the way that they did the live action Ranma, mm-hmm. uh, telly movie a few years ago. It's about uh, six or seven years ago now, I think, which is, uh, kind of really have it more on the goofy end of, you know, of slapstick and people getting hurt and, of, and, how are you going to do uh, Genma, the, the guy who turns into a panda? How on earth are you going to do him in anime? Well, they just put a guy in a panda suit and just played <laughs> it off as a bit of, more of a laugh than anything else. So you could definitely do it as the more of the goofy end of things as well, but that also lends itself to being more of a cheap-ass-looking production 
more than anything else. You know, kind of you're going to have to make it look B grade, or you're yeah. going to have to go in the serious direction. So you could do it, but I wouldn't recommend it. I think I think I'm pretty happy with what we've got right now. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be like upset if they ever tried to do it. In fact, I think that they've made like commercials with live action lum like over the years, but like. Yeah, again, it's. I think that Yurizyatsura, a lot of the charm is the fact that it's a cartoon. So you definitely are losing something yeah. if you try to do it in live action. There is definitely a Looney Tunes sort of element to that mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and to the slapstick. Uh, so one of the interesting things is uh, that they did used to have stage shows of Urizyatsura. Mm. So stage shows are, um, and when I say stage shows, I don't mean like in legitimate theatre. Uh, st- these stage shows are very popular in Japan and they are made ostensibly for children, uh, where people would, you know, dress up as the characters. And my, and my daughter loves watching these on YouTube because she's a big Ampaman fan. Uh, and Ampaman is a, um, is an anime solely directed towards, um, focused towards children. Very, very popular. And they did have these back in the eighties where people would dress up. As the characters, and when I say dress up, you kind of have to see this to believe it. But they're basically 3D sort of models of the characters kind of wearing tights underneath them with kind of like large anime style heads. And it's horrific. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so these are the sorts of things that they would have done at shopping centers and around the place a couple of times. I don't think they were particularly common. I have seen photos of them. I've never seen any videos because I'm not even sure, like you know, how common cameras were back in the day. I'd have to do a bit more of a deeper dive on uh, on Japanese YouTube, but I have seen it, and it is disturbing, especially seeing Ten as basically a full sized human being. Mm. That is kind of a little bit weird. Yeah, <laughs> I I mean, Ten is a baby, and you're depicting him as a full adult human. Yeah, well, not. I mean. Obviously, there was like a, a younger, shorter person inside the the suit, but they were kind of, you know, walking around on stage at some point. And this could have just been more of a meet and greet thing where they just kind of posed a bit and did all that sort of stuff. And the same thing happened in the nineties with Sailor Moon mm. to a certain extent as well. But these ones are certainly a lot more horrific than that. <laughs> okay, so the next question here uh, we've got from Amber. He's actually sent in two things here. Uh, the first one is of Mendo kissing an octopus. Obviously, this is from some sort of... Uh, I guess it's from a doujin. Um, yeah, it is from a doujin. Um, a pornographic one by the looks of it, because I don't think he's wearing a shirt. No, it's so. going shirtless. It's very sweaty. He's, he's sweating a lot. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's nice to see Mendo get over... Well, I guess he wasn't afraid of... He, he likes octopuses, but... Uh, he really, really likes octopuses, really especially in this one. His love for them here, yeah. I've. I just thought I'd mention this, just because it's a funny thing that um, uh, Amber probably thought we wouldn't even mention this, but uh, <laughs> I thought I'd bring it up anyway. I've. I've never sought out Urusayatsara pornography in any way, shape, or form, but I have come across it a lot because just living in Japan, this stuff sort of comes up in certain stores, and if you look in anime stores, and especially the back half of some anime stores, all of a sudden you'll see you know DVDs of of people and, you know, comics of people just obviously doing this sort of uh, Urusei Atara-inspired stories. And uh, nobody has clothes. 
Yeah. And if you know, if you like that stuff, more power to you. But it's just it's really not my cup of tea because in my mind, Urusei Atari is kind of more of an you know, as the fact that she's an alien girl in a bikini, there is a sort of innocence about that series and about yeah. Lum in particular. So uh Amber's other question is anyway, my real question is is there any episode that you didn't like initially, but liked it more on a second viewing? And is there any episodes that are the opposite? An episode that I didn't like at You first. didn't like when you saw it for the first time, but then you watched it again and you went, actually, this is actually a really good episode. Mm-hmm. That's is one that I need to think about a little bit because I feel like I liked all the episodes pretty much immediately bit of a tricky one that one i can i can certainly add my two cents to this one in that uh i think uh when i got my hands on the entire series in the 2000s and i won't say how i got my hands on the entire series in the 2000s i did start doing what you initially did which was kind of slide around randomly to different episodes here and there and i watched a whole bunch of the first kind of 20 to 30 episodes in order. And then I just sort of started skipping around and and watching random ones. And I did come across that one episode of Ataru's mother Mm. and her story about being, is this a dream? Is this reality? Has the city actually been destroyed at the end? And then um, Ataru and Lum come in at the 11th hour and save everyone. Did that actually happen? And I remember seeing this and I remember hearing some of my friends who had seen the series say, Oh yeah, Urusei Atsaru gets really weird sometimes. And this was only like episode 70 or something like that. And I thought, it actually kind of put me off a little bit. Like, oh, it's not that fun or funny or anything. If they're all kind of going to be like this, then kind of maybe I'll just, uh, you know, watch a couple more and then forget about it. And that was kind of a one-off, particularly at that point in the series. Um, So when I came back to it and realized that the whole series wasn't like that, because, you know, my other evidence was Lumber Forever... <laughs> and then I gave it another watch in the context of seeing more episodes. I really appreciated that episode a lot more than what I did originally. Cause I mm. thought that was just kind of, they were doing that with every single character going forward because I was just randomly skipping around. But, um, I think that episode in the context of the series, I really grew to appreciate it. Cause I've given it, you know, two or three more viewings since then. And it's a popular one that when I do the episode streams, people have requested of me. And the, the more I, I kind of watch it, the more I'm appreciative of what they were trying to do in that episode. Yeah, I love that episode a lot. It's, even on first viewing, I love that episode. But it's also because I love Ataru's mother. And I also do like episodes that have more of a psychological bent, not just in years out, but in other shows. That does fascinate me. And also, it's just a very interestingly directed episode that does set really great move and ambiance. That there is also a lot of cool visual information being depicted in the scene. So it's, it's really masterfully done. But actually, it is. upon thinking about like episodes that I didn't like initially, I, it was like those early episodes from like the first couple of episodes before like uh, it switches to the half hour format. Because the show does have a much simpler look and it has that two story format, it definitely did not feel like the show at its best to me when I was first like randomly watching episodes and like watching early episodes right next to 
later episodes. Like, they definitely did not seem as good as in comparison. And I also felt that a lot of the choices made in the early episodes, like introducing Ten early, I didn't appreciate those as much. But now I, upon rewatching those episodes, like, I do think they're actually really well made. Again, there's some really great animation in there, and even that the limited parts of it are really well utilized and smartly done. So I appreciate those early episodes of the show a lot better now. Yeah, that's interesting because the episode that Loma's introduced in is very different, which is, you know, obviously the first episode, is very, very different from the first issue of the manga itself. Mm -hmm. And Loma's actually a lot more scheming and a lot more evil in that as well. And I think because they knew the direction that the character was going to go and because Lum was supposed to be a one-off in the first in the first chapter of the manga, they really played that down a lot. And that may have actually contributed to the two-part episode format that was happening during the first uh, 20 episodes mm-hmm. because they knew that they could condense a lot of those stories down and yeah. still get the same effect. Basically. And they also... Uh- of course, the anime adapts the series out of order. Like, they adapt chapters just random. Like, a Ken is introduced in the second episode of the anime. He's not introduced in the manga until the sixth volume, 60-plus chapters in. So they introduce hmm. him so early on that they write him into stories he was not there initially. Yeah, that's true. Because the series, you know, places stories out of order... There are some chapters from early on the manga that don't show up until way later on in the anime and kind of vice versa. There are chapters that happen much later that they, there are stories that happen much later in the manga that show up much earlier in the anime. And because they adapt stuff out of order, that creates some problems with the continuity of the characters' development and how the relationships are supposed to change as they were in the mangas. Like a big one for me is like, Episode 22 is the Great Space Matchmaking Operation, and that's close to the 100-chapter mark in the manga. And that comes in a full 20 episodes before the episode where, you know, the iconic episode where, you know, Lum leaves Earth and Ataru thinks that she's gone for good, and he has his breakdown and realizes that he truly does care about her. Like, that happens after the that Great Matchmaking Operation episode in the anime and so you have this disconnect because in the manga that story where lum leaves and ataru thinks she's gone is like when he realizes he actually cares about lum and so that affects kind of how his relationship with her from that point forward and so when you have that matchmaking operation story like it makes sense why Ataru is kind of protective of Lum and why he would go to the Oni planet to crash Lum's dad's plans to marry her off to someone else. But in the anime, you have Ataru's relationship with Lum change from episode to episode because they're adapting chapters in random order. And so in one episode, Ataru will really care about Lum, and then in another episode, Ataru will want nothing more to get away from Lum, and that's all because they're adapting the story out of order, and they're not really taking into account that the relationship between the characters and how Ataru feels for Lum does kind of change 
step by step over the course of the series and it kind of stays consistent in the manga in a way it doesn't in the anime. Yeah, I think that's very true. And Tennis kind of can be a divisive character because Tennis is sort of essential to uh, to Urusei Atsara because he's, you know, one of, I suppose you could call him an antagonist towards Atara. Mm-hmm. Or at least towards Atari, who is definitely an antagonist. <laughs> Whether he would be an antagonist to the series as a whole is a bit debatable. But a lot of people find uh, Jerry Ten very annoying. And I think a lot of people would wish that they had kept him out of the anime <laughs> a little bit longer. So they could kind of explore that. And I, I see both points of view on that one. Like, I do find Ten a bit annoying. But he is a good foil for Ataru. And I know that a lot of people, uh, and my wife in particular, thinks that Ten is really cute. Mm. So, you know, as a, as a man, I kind of think, oh, yeah, I know what that Ten's up to, you know, like, you know, go, getting getting hugs from cuddles from all the girls and stuff like that just because he's cute and why Ataru hates him so much. You know, he's got a, another agenda. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, he is a cute little boy from the planet Oni, Oniboshi. So mm-hmm. I think that there is a bit of a dynamic there, and I'm glad he was introduced because he does – interact with a lot of the the characters especially the the male characters on a lot of funny levels yeah he adds a valuable dynamic to the series uh we can explore him more later down the line because i definitely have thoughts about uh, all the characters really but (laughs) again we go off tangents here ten is an interesting one to kind of because after he was introduced i think takahashi just didn't always know what to do with him yeah but we'll come back to that at a different point yeah well, Amber also asked, like, if there's any episodes that we felt the opposite. Like, episodes we really liked when we first watched them, but now we are not as fond of. Not as fond of. That's true, yeah. Um, how Do you have anything like that? Do you have any, any thoughts on that matter? In terms of episodes that I'm not as fond of now, I think I liked the Lady Ryunosuke episode in the anime when I first watched it. But the more I think about it, the more I I realize how Oshi... I feel Oshi in particular really did not understand Ryunosuke as a character and like what her uh, idea of like what she actually wanted in terms of like embracing her gender identity because the whole Lady Ryunosuke episode in the anime is like a real taming of the shrew kind of situation where Onsen Mark is like making Ryunosuke be the prim and proper feminine woman. That's not what Ryunosuke wants, and but like the the anime, I feel tries to at least, especially in the Oshi episodes, I think it tries to position that Ryunosuke wants to be traditionally feminine and womanly, but that's not actually what she wants. She wants the freedom to explore her femininity, but she doesn't hate who she is and how she naturally expresses herself. She just wants. To be able to have the freedom to express her uh, femininity without being forced to be under the strict thumb of her father and like his demands for how she lives and like the way she presents herself. Like she wants the freedom to wear a draw and to wear something cute if she you know, wants to like that, but she doesn't want to change her personality and who she is fundamentally. But I feel like Oshi's interpretation, like, is that's what she wants. And that episode goes to the ad extent where Ryunosuke's entire character has been changed, but that's not what she wants. And like, I feel like 
You know, as much as I like Oshi's works, I do think there's some ideas and opinions he has about, like, masculinity and femininity, like the ideal man, ideal woman that is a little rooted in some sexist and outdated uh, ideals. And I think that episode very much embodies that. I think that's true. Uh, Ryanosuke has has her own identity and and she's struggling to kind of work out what that that identity is you know she does want to become more feminine but she also doesn't want to give up some of the traits that makes her who she is yeah and strength is certainly one of those characters and i think uh takahashi obviously really latched onto those ideas and those characters because they're kind of proto genma and ranma from ranma Mm half uh but at the same time, Oshi just didn't quite understand what to do with them, but they played such an important role later on in the manga um, that they did really have to be introduced at around the, that time. Yeah, I mean, Ryanosuke is arguably the third most important character in the manga after she's introduced. In terms of the how many stories are about her in the series after that point, like, she has a lot of storylines to herself like she does overtake the series for a lot of stretches of it and there are still good Ryunosuke episodes in the Oshi run like in fact most of them are good because they stick close to the manga story but it's this one particular example where the original story is changed to such an extent that it really shows what Oshi's perception of what Ryunosuke as a character was was so fundamentally different from what it is supposed to be in the manga and what Takahashi's vision of her and depiction of her is. And that's when I think of that, that makes me very disappointed because Ryunosuke is a character that I, I really love and I really am invested in her arcs throughout the series. So I, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. But that that's one episode that comes to mind for me. All right. We, we should move on to the next few questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're hitting the two hour mark now, I think. Uh, do you guys think the relationship between Lum and Ataru are different between the manga and the anime? I personally think Ataru is a lot more scummy in the manga, whereas their relationship seems may well, may, way more legitimate in the anime. And that's from Carlos at B underscore type underscore H underscore style. What are, do you have any thoughts on that one? I mentioned this earlier, but I feel the relationship is developed more organically in the manga because... Like, Ataru's relationship with Lum, how he feels towards Lum, naturally changes over the course of the manga. Whereas in the anime, because they're adapting the stories out of order, how Ataru treats Lum differs from episode to episode, especially early on. I can definitely understand seeing the relationship in a more sweeter context in the anime, because the anime does introduce earlier on these sweet romantic stories of Ataru and Lum, like having just genuinely heartwarming moments with one another, like episode 10, Pitter Patter Christmas Eve. That's very early on in the show. And that's a very, you know, sweet episode where it ends with them holding hands, walking through the snow. And you have episodes like that very early on in the show. That's like, oh, so yeah, that makes you think, oh, so they really do care about each other and like each other. Whereas in the manga, like those kind of emotions are not heightened to that level so immediately. It really develops over the course of the series. And then 
naturally like you get like sweet moments but they're not like immediately at that level they're holding hands and walking through the snow they're not like as these super sugary romantic gestures they don't happen early on in the manga like that it takes time for that to develop no i agree with that i do like the way that their relationship happens in the manga and you've got to understand that in the first run of the first few chapters or volumes of the manga, Ataru really legitimately wants nothing to do with Lum. And Lum comes onto him in what can only be really described as like a more psychotic way. And she calms down after a while and stops randomly kissing Ataru and like, you know, electrocuting him to the point of death, which almost happens in one of the chapters early on. And it they kind of even out and level out. Uh, and he is more accepting of Lum in his life as she kind of calms down, you know, and towards the end of the manga, they are literally hanging out all the time. Although, you know, Ataru still wants to go and, and girl hunt and still wants to do all this stuff. He's just kind of got this quiet sort of acceptance that this is my life now. This is my life with Lum. This is what happens. So I think you could certainly handpick a whole bunch of episodes about the anime and Ataru is certainly scummy in both of them to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Although, the manga, I think, is is kind of played up for laughs a lot more. Actually, yeah. Uh, when it's kind of more serious. Like, it could be seen as more serious these days, but, you know, once again, product of its time. I actually think Ataro goes over the line in more extreme ways in the anime. I think, actually, it's exaggerated even more in the anime than it is in the manga. It can be, yeah. And it's always for comedic effect, um, but still, it's yeah, it's a, it's a little bit cringeworthy to watch these days. And Atara really comes off grosser in a lot of those moments too, because you'll have them animate him like sweating and panting and drooling all over, and then they really exaggerate in in Corden's face to make him look more like a monstrous dirtbag, whereas. The Takahashi is a lot kinder to him in the manga, and he 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 doesn't go as far over the line as how he might in the anime. Yeah. So, do you have a least favorite episode? That's our next question from um, Dumpster JPEG. Uh, I mentioned Lady Renosuke before. Besides that, least favorite episodes. I think that episode ninety five. The fairy tales episode where they're, they kind of reinterpret Japanese folklore stories, but with your say outside mm. characters, that episode is okay, but it, it just, it just does not grab me as one that I really like to revisit because when I remember what I was watching and I just did not feel like it was that interesting what they did with the stories. Like it just felt like they were playing them straight, but you had the Yurisayatsu characters in them. Besides that, some of the clip shows are not that good. Like episode 102, the Sakura clip show. I think that one is kind of really, well, no, that that's episode 104 is the Sakura clip show. That one is yeah, kind of phoned yeah. in. There's, there's two clip shows in a row. There's the wrong clip show. That's 103. And then there's the Sakura clip show. That's 104. Those are like literally the two episodes before the, the two-parter that Oshi's run goes out on. And those two mm. clip shows feel very phoned in. I mean, animation is very expensive, and we yeah. all know that. Uh, and so clip shows were certainly such a staple of of a lot of, not just animation, but of sitcoms and even drama shows of the 80s and 90s. And I like to think 
that for the most part we've moved away from those by now. But uh, you know, if you're running out of money, <laughs> which if they if you had a really big two party to go out on, mm-hmm. may have been the case. Uh, you know, they may have wanted to pour all their resources into something that was going to be a bit more grandiose, and that could have been the reason there. I would say that, uh, like, aside from the clip episodes, and you're going to hate me for my opinion on this, but there is one episode where Ataru decides to resign, and everyone thinks that he is resigning from being Lum's husband, and says to Magane, I want you to take over. And that episode I just couldn't watch more than once, uh, because Magane just goes kind of overboard and because they kind of fill this out to be an entire episode of Ataru just kind of like looking sad into the wind going, no, oh, <laughs> my, my time has come, I've had enough. But it focuses a lot on Magane, who, while he has such more of a personality in the anime, it goes kind of a little bit beyond creepy in this one for me, where he's having a, like a, a five-minute pretend conversation in his bedroom with a pillow surrounded by lots of pictures of Lum and how he's going to come onto her. And it's like, oh, just, oh, I can't, I can't want to sit through that ever again. This is kind of why I love that. <laughs> I love that story, both the manga version and the anime version. And they're completely different. If you read them, they're like completely different outside of the premise that very, Ataru very is giving up his position as class president, but everyone thinks he's giving up on Lum. In the manga version, that's only like the first couple pages, and then the, the rest of the chapter just spirals into other people thinking that he's giving up being on the main character, and then they all vie to yeah, be the I main love character. That's so fourth wall breaking yeah. in, because like Cherry comes up and goes, oh, with my face and with my awesome voice, I'm going to be the new, <laughs> and you know, protagonist of Urusei. So it breaks the fourth wall in a way that it just never happens in the anime. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, but the anime, they, they have to fill it out. And just Magane well, yeah. in that episode just ooh, it, it literally sent shivers down my they spine. They completely rewrote it. But no, that's actually one of my favorite episodes. And it's because no, Magane it, it. See, the, the thing is, like, Magani is Oshi's, like, pet character. Like, so yeah, often yeah. he's the vo- he's basically the voice for all of Oshi's ideas and, like, things he actually believes or, like, actually likes. But, like, in this episode, Magani is actually portrayed as a loser. We see that he is actually this gross, disgusting person who has all these posters of Lum on his wall, and he's just this gross dude, and this, the episode... That's the episode's opinion of him, and it ends with him being a loser. Like, he he goes through this grand gesture of he dresses up in this big armor, and he's, like, running against all these... Uh, this is another reason why I love the episode, too, is that it escalates out of control in just an amazing way, and that Shinobu thinks that the power balance in the school is gonna go awry if Ataru breaks it with Lum, so she conspires with all the other girl gangs from the other school... And they hire goons and they all are like hunting down Ataru to make sure he does not give his speech in class. Megane has to come to Ataru's rescue and like fight him off while Ataru escapes to class. It's just the way it escalates. It's just so freaking hilarious. I love it. I do like the escalation in, uh, and you know, and those, as you mentioned before, the grandiose speeches that they make, the, the, you know, the faux intellectualism of, you know, this is what I stand for. This is the hill I'm prepared to die on. And Oshi does love that sort of stuff. But I think just sometimes the character of Magane, and a lot of the characters always go too far, mm-hmm. but there's just something about Magane who just 
has this weird obsession with fascism. Yeah, that's uh, like the way they salute each other and and, and yeah, all that sort an of stuff. And, thing. and the way he just becomes yeah. really stalkery at some points, where I just I just can't fathom it. Yeah, uh, but that's just me. That's just me. Yeah, Oshi really likes the kind of character Megani is, which is why he basically made a clone of him for Padlaber. In like one oh, of the yes. mechanics of in Padlaber, he looked exactly like Megane, and he acts exactly like him. He just made the character again for Padlaber, but yeah, it, it also all those traits of like military fetishism, especially like like this uh, interest in fascist imagery and oh, all that stuff. That stuff, Foshi is a real, real big fan of it incorporating this yeah works. it's a, a whole the the military otaku or the gundam otaku there's a is a is an interesting cross-section there actually a lot of uh people who love uh, the tv show gundam don't uh specifically identify as like anime otaku they are specifically gundam otaku because they feel that um the show gundam is very separate from other anime because of um its military storylines it's um it's, it's it's an interesting case study. Yeah. But also a little frightening the way some people react to that. Yeah. Well. Uh, so our next question from at Along64, two ways. What period of the show do you enjoy the most? It changed quite a lot over Oshi's run. Plus, uh, there's the later Yamazaki stuff. Personally, I think maybe the middle of the Oshi era, uh, maybe somewhere like episodes 40 to 80-ish. And I think we've already pretty much uh, answered this question. It's uh, very similar to another question about which um, which uh, style we enjoyed the most. Well, actually, well, I said that I like how the show looks best in the uh, Dean years. I actually hmm. would agree with uh, Aaron Long here that that forty-ish, eighty episode range that is, I think, probably the best ring of episodes of the show. If you were like to cut out a piece of the show, which was like. Some of the best string of episodes, I would say that. Even more narrowly, I would say the episodes in the 60s and 70s are like the highest density of my favorite episode. And especially the 70s, where you get a lot of the anime original episodes. You get Shinobu Cinderella story, episode 71. And then there were none, episode 75. And then episode 78, Mother of Love and Badgement. That is a very good episode, 75. A string of incredible anime original episodes. But even beyond those, all the adaptation episodes in there are incredible. Like, that's a really great stretch of episodes. I think I've watched that stretch of episodes more than any of the other stretches of episodes because that has the highest density of my favorites in them. So, yeah, the 60s and 70s are, like, my favorite stretch of episodes in the show. I would probably go 20 to 50 because mm. they're, they're probably – there's a lot of classic ones in there where they adapt a lot of the manga stories very well and add some of their own extra content. But they also do some of – they start, you know, branching out and doing some more of their own work in there as well. So I think – I think probably 20 to 50 would be my range. Uh, just probably out of the ones that I've just seen the most, and I'm more than happy to go back to and watch again when people request it for the episode streams. Mm-hmm. So next one, uh, what is Urusei Yatsara's popularity in Japan? Does the average Japanese person or Japanese anime manga fan remember the show? That is an excellent question, actually. So Lum... Most people, the overwhelming majority of people who are anime fans will recognize who Lum is. They might not have seen it, uh, Urusei Yatsura, but it's, it's kept alive just through 
people mentioning it, you know, they still make Pachisero and Pachinko machines. There's a new Pachinko machine coming out this year, actually, and that's getting a lot of buzz online. They do the, they did the 30th anniversary back in 2008. They've done the 40th anniversary last year with pop-up cafes. So I would say most people in Japan know who Lum is. Mm-hmm. Just from, just from my, uh, and you know, I'm a little bit biased here. <laughs> it's fair to say, but in the anime gate on the, uh, Seibu Ikebukuro line, they have four like bronze statues of anime characters. One is Tomorrow's Joe, one is um, Galaxy Express 999, mm-hmm. one is uh, Atom Boy, Astro Boy, and the fourth one is, of course, Lum from Urusei Yatsura. So I think it is still in the public consciousness in a way that even if people might not even know the title Urusei Yatsura, they do know the character Lum. Yeah. Even if it's just very, very kind of just at the, the back of their brain in the corner of their memory. Yeah, I mean, she's literally immortalized as a bronze statue alongside other incredibly classic characters. So I think the series has definitely left an incredible cultural impact, for sure. Okay, uh, so for the next question, as a City Hunter fan, the character analysis of Ataru from P1 connects with me. Lol, I think that's more of a comment than anything yeah, else. Yeah, it is a comment, but I'm glad that they enjoyed our character analysis of Ataru. Like, I think he's an incredibly fascinating character. I think there's even more to say. I think there's a lot more to say about Ataru. And I kind of, because I, I do love Ataru, but I also realize that in this day and age, he's, he's very wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you can't really, and you know, anime series do try and get away with that, but it's, it's, uh, becoming a lot, a lot less common than it used to be. And he was almost kind of like the, the prototype kind of, uh, in that in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Of having a guy who was just so bloody horny all the time. <laughs> and Ryo from City Hunter as well is, mm-hmm. is kind of a, a, in a similar vein, but in much more of a, a shonen sort of way. Like yeah. a big masculine guy who's ready to hit on women and shoot through his hand just to s- slow a bullet down and all that sort of stuff that is kind of like hyper masculinized version of Ataru in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, I mean that was very in vogue in like Shonen Jump in the late 70s, early 80s. You had Space Adventure Cobra, you had Kenshiro Fist and North Star, like these hyper-masculine characters. And Cobra and Real Saiba, yeah, those are both characters who are, you know, their behavior is problematic today but like they are supposed to be like this masculine ideal of like this super cool guy who gets all the ladies and they can behave however they want because, you know, they, they're just that suave at the end of the day. And yeah, and that's the thing. That's the difference. In City Hunter, like, he would come on to women and women would go, oh, uh, I don't really like you. But by the, epi- the end of the episode, they'd all fall in love with him inexplicably, yeah. you know, because he's just so cool. Ataru is just kind of the opposite in the fact that he's not actually that good looking. <laughs> His moves are not all that great. He will hit on women. And by the end of the episode, he gets slapped. Yeah. At best. <laughs> yeah, Ataru's affections are never returned or... Very rarely. Or rewarded, which is nice, but yeah. <laughs> it, it is good because he shouldn't win. Mm-hmm. He really doesn't deserve to win. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, next one. One of the libraries has a copy of the new release of Urusei Atsara in cataloging, so I put a hold on it. I hope they're able to get uh, VizSig 2 and 3. So once again, more of a comment. Yeah, this is a comment from Allison, a friend of Mars. And yeah, I, uh, I'm glad that 
uh, your library is getting your Theatra, you'll be able to read it. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. I am really happy that libraries in America and uh, in other countries around the world, and it's happening in Australia too, are actually aware of the phenomena of manga and anime and are actually getting these sorts of books in there, advancing with the times. That never happened in the 90s when I went into a library uh, in Canberra. And it's good to see that when I went in there lately, and I don't go into a lot of libraries anymore, they did actually have quite a range of anime and of manga more than anything else. But they had a bit of anime. Um, you know, they do have some some DVDs you could borrow and stuff. I would even go as far as to say that some of it was inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Strawberry marshmallow, Ichigo marshmallow Whoa. is um, yeah, that was in the kids section. And that's um, that, yeah, that's not. I mean, it has kids in it. It ain't appropriate. Trust me. I've I've read one issue of that, and it, it's not it's not cool. Okay, and so our last question, uh, and this is from Luffy. Uh, a prominent member of Lum Squad and an excellent cosplayer at Seripuff. Give them a follow. What would you change about the anime if you could? So if there was one overarching change you could make to the characters or situations or episodes, what would that be? I would have them adapt the chapter where they go to the future and they see that Ataru has a kid in the future and then we have the revelation that that kid is supposed to be the kid of Ataru and Jinobu. So we have that established as a through line for the show in the anime like it is in the manga. That at the back in your mind you're like, wait, we know this future where Ataru is supposed to be with Shinobu so what? how does the relationship with Lum pan out? Like how does that get to that? And then you set up properly for Anaba the Dream Maker and then the thematic kind of climax to the relationships and the character development that we've had up until that point. To me, that's very So important. would you show that early on in the series? Yeah, like, like as it originally was in the manga? Yes. You'd show it like in the first sort of 10 episodes? Yes, I would. Because that's such a crucial story to me in terms of like really understanding the character arts of the main trio and like also the central teams of the show and the series so yeah i I would put that very early on because i think that's a very integral story and it's a real shame that it's not in the anime i think for yeah i know i would agree with that actually because that made a very big impact on me at the time in that um as much as you love lum even though she is as i said you know very very much a little bit psychotic in the first few um few chapters is that you'd kind of tend to think that maybe Ataru and Shinobu are actually meant to be together. And this predicted future, which they did, kind of proved that in some ways. And by the end of the episode, Lum was, uh, that, that chapter rather, like Lum was just clinging to Ataru, uh, almost fanatically saying, he just, you know, she just doesn't want to let him go for any reason at all now. And that kind of showed like Lum's vulnerability there as well, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I would say I do really appreciate that the anime and the manga are very separate things. I think one of the really early episodes had Onsen Mark as a a very different sort of teacher and character than he would become later on, who kind of had a bit of a or one of the teachers that they yeah, introduced early on. Kura like, Kurihashi or something, the per yeah, the pedophile that- who is into Lum. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely get rid of that episode. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, that one was just creepy yeah, more than anything else. Not a great character. 
the one thing I would transfer from the manga over to the anime is is Kosuke. Mm. And I know Perm uh Poma, as his name kind of more translates to, is functionally what they use instead of Kosuke in a lot of these episodes. But Kosuke has an interesting relationship with Ataru in the fact that he's often in cahoots with Ataru. He's not trying to get with Lum, although I think Yi Loki has a crush on her like everyone else does. Mm-hmm. He's kind of more of a friend to Ataru. And Ataru in the in the anime is very much long-suffering, can't really trust anyone, although certainly has a friendly-ish relationship with everyone. You know, it's it's always this sort of thing where they're always conspiring to get rid of Ataru. Whereas Kosuke kind of joins Ataru on a lot of his misadventures and, you know, he's one of the troublemakers at Tomobiki High. And I kind of like that camaraderie that he has. And they do genuinely fight and have scraps and stuff like that because, you know, Ataru will steal his lunch or whatever. But I do like the fact that Ataru, at least at some stage, has a real friend. Mm-hmm. And he has a bit more of a, a like, a, a personality in the manga as well. Like, I think he's only ever appeared once or twice in the anime, and that was in the um, the OVA that they did in 2008. Yeah. It is kind of a shame. In the anime, Ataru really has no friends, because all the people he hangs around with load him or just tolerate him at best. Yeah, and I think that's a bit of a shame, because for all of Ataru's faults, of which there are many and numerous, you know, he does have a soft spot, a soft side, and, and you know, he does have this sort of thing where he is, you know, occasionally a good person. Mm-hmm. And I think have giving him a genuine friend to bounce off probably would have, like, softened him up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. You know, just as someone to interact with that isn't antagonistic to him would have been, would have been a good a- outlet to allow him to express emotions or, like, reveal sides of his character that we can't get if you know he's interacting with characters that he knows are antagonistic towards them like mendo and the stormtroopers <laughs> yeah exactly so i think we'll we'll end this episode on on what our favorite episode of all time is what is your favorite episode of the anime episode 157 i love darling sincerity the episode with or Nozomi, Nozomi the ghost girl. Nozomi, yeah. The episode where this girl, Nozomi, she died, she like was bedridden from disease, but like every day out the window, she would see Ataru like just running in full life and like that inspired her. And so she, you know, her last wish is was to like, you know, spend a day with him and go on a date with him. And she passed away, but she comes you know, she lingers on as a ghost because she has that one and a last wish. And like her mother kind of reaches out to Sakura, who then reaches out to Ataru to like go on this date with her. And like at first, Ataru is like all creeped out by the idea. It's like he doesn't want to do it. But then he, when he sees Nozomi, like you see something like change in him right there. And then he, he does his shtick of like, he asks, Oh, what's your phone number? And complimenting yeah, he more. does his normal but there's, thing. Yeah. There's something you can tell. There's something different about it by the way he's saying these things. It's gentler. It's softer. And throughout the episode, you're kind of in Lum's shoes. Like you're watching Ataru trying to figure out, like, 
what's going on here? Like, like seeing him treat Nozomi, go on a date with her, and really try his best to make her happy. And you have in the episode a moment where Megan, Megan is watches the tower. And they're thinking the worst of him. Like they think that he's he's up to something, and then you know Lum chews them out and shocks them and all that. But that's like what you think. Oh, Ataro, you know he's he's such a selfish creature. He's he's taking gonna take advantage of Nozomi in some way. But like this entire episode is just showing these sweet scenes of Ataro like doing his best to pay attention to what Nozomi wants and trying to make her happy. And it ends in just this beautiful scene where you know. And then when we find that, like, happiness, like, the fireworks mm, kind of She's able go, to pass on. She's able to pass on because, you know, she wanted to spend, like, a a moment, like, with Ataro under Snowfall. And, and like, there are some fireworks that kind of look like snow. And, like, after that beautiful fireworks scene, like, then she's able to pass on. And then... Throughout this episode, Atari's wearing this heavy winter coat because Nozomi passed away winter. Her lingering regret mm. is that, you know, her lingering wish was like to spend time with Ataru like in winter time under the snow and all that. So like she had knitted him in the hospital like this winter coat. It's really heavy. Like this is in the summer when they're going to the state. So he's wearing this winter coat, this sweater. It's very heavy. He's hot. He's sweating under it. And so it is, it seems painful for him, but like when Nozomi passes on, that's his opportunity. Like, you don't have to wear this sweater anymore. But, you know, he says, you know, no, I'm just going to wear it for a little bit longer. And then you have that yeah. beautiful. And, and it's a very special part yeah. because the way that he is uncomfortable mm-hmm. and you notice how uncomfortable he is during that entire. During the basically yeah. the entire episode, but he doesn't complain. That he's sweating, but he ref- he doesn't let up once. Yeah, he doesn't complain. Like it's just a pure showing of Ataru's selfless side that we don't usually see. Like this is Ataru dropping the facade that he normally puts on, like this monkish, like uh, idiot, pervy character that he puts on and then being like the sincere genuine person with nozomi having like compassion and empathy and like really doing something purely selfish just to make this girl happy it's just such a compelling story and it and and has just this beautiful framing device in the anime that they add in that i think was just amazing with the mother of nozomi just watching them on this date and, you know, she's being frustrated at times because Itaru is eating up a storm and she's flooded with the bill or whatever. But it culminates in this final scene where, like, she visits Nozomi's graves and she sees that Itaru has left, like, flowers for her. And then she she's wearing this parasol throughout this entire episode that she's holding above her. And then, like, at this moment, she kind of, like, takes down the parasol and then looks off at, like, the sea and then just kind of gives a bow, a silent, like, thank you to Ataru for what he has done for her daughter and helping her find happiness. And then you have the amazing final, like, sequence of, like, Lum kind of kind of being proud of Ataru and then, like, just these amazing kind of kindly soft-spoken lines of, like, darling... You're so kind, and like Atara saying, I'm always kind. It's just, ah, uh, just an incredible character episode for Ataru, and it's just so beautifully made. There are just some gorgeous sequences in here. It's such a really compelling story. To me, this episode 
truly shows both the artistic side of the show at its best, but also the heart of Yurisiatsu at its best. Its characters at its at its best, and I I truly love it. And this is a great Yamazaki episode mm. as well. It uh, like this is very heavily based off the um, the chapter of the manga. Um, but they also have like some extra scenes in there where Nozomi has like a little pet bird. Mm-hmm. And then after she dies, the mother lets the little pet bird go and, you know, to symbolizing that she's finally free of this, of this existence. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just a, a nice few little touches like this. And if you say, Oh, oh, she's the, the end or be all of Urusei Atsara, then watch this episode because I think it'll, it'll really change your mind on, uh, on how the, the series is as a whole. Most definitely. Uh, especially in the later episodes. So this is that is a really good example. I'm actually very incredibly fortunate enough to have one of the um the Genga, uh, which is the keyframe animation keyframes of that episode, the character model of Nozomi herself, mm-hmm. which is very very precious to me. Actually, I came across it when I was looking through cells in um, in Nakano Broadway, and I came across this one, and it was only like uh, 500 yen or something like that. It's about five bucks, wow. and I just kind of went and bought it straight away before I was. <laughs> Even finish going through everything. It's just in case someone else saw it and, and got it. But it's such a sweet episode that I. It's really good to have, you know, just a, a small part of that in in my collection. Mm-hmm. But what about you, AC? What's your favorite? God, it's so difficult to choose a favorite <laughs> episode. the The matchmaking party probably holds a special place in my heart, especially in the anime because it, it is like a full episode rather than just a 15-minute one. It is the first of its kind. Ataru really does go above and beyond in that particular anime and goes into space. Not for the first time, but um, the way that he's kind of depicted as this grasshopper-like man is also just just really comical. And the fact that he tries to underplay it when he gets back to Earth and everything's returned to normal, he's still in this kind of grasshopper pose because he's been kneeling in intense spaceship for so long. That he he still goes, no, I don't know what you're talking about. That wasn't me. What? No, I'm glad you're back. You know, whatever. Another one of my favorites is probably the Yellow Ribbon episodes. Mm. Uh, it's only a, it's an early 15 minute one. I think I like the manga version more than the anime version, but I still really, I still really love the depictions of Lum without her powers mm-hmm. because she's, uh, she's even more kind of lost and innocent than she normally would be. Uh, but she that makes her cling to Ataru even more. And then she beats him up for real. Like she scratches his face, she's <laughs> kicking him. And it's like oh, worse than the electric shocks. So when she f- is finally, the, the ribbons which seal away her powers are finally taken off, she gets angry. More, more angry and more than you've probably seen her up until that point. But I suppose one of my other... My and this will be the last one that I mentioned because I can't really choose a favorite, but I really do like any episode that has uh, Lum's father in it. And there is this episode where he comes to Earth uh, because he's been kicked out of home. Mm. And I could watch this episode infinitely because it's just this stupid misogynistic, and you know <laughs> he's kind of a prick, really. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the episode, he gets what's coming to him as well because Lum's father comes back to Earth and he's giving this big important speech about masculinity and how you shouldn't stand up and then he gets the shit beaten out of him mm-hmm. uh, by Lum's mother who has the same sort of temper that Lum does um, but at the end of that episode there is this there is this kind of poignant moment where Ataru's dad who has very much been the undertrodden character until now is kind of pouring himself a drink 
And Ataru's mother tries to take it off him and he goes, no, no, it's mine, it's mine. <laughs> and pours himself the rest of the sake and drinks it. So <laughs> for such a, for such a, what you'd call, I suppose, in the old, in the old vernacular, a beta male, someone who doesn't really have a lot of power at his home or his, his work or anything like that, you know, kind of makes a stand for himself and goes, no, no, this is, this is my little corner of the world and I'm just going to take a, a little bit more sake than I usually would. <laughs> and it's kind of a bit of a misogynistic, moment in there but i just kind of like the way that episode ends with uh with a little bit of a taru's dad who who i think is underutilized during both the manga and the um and the anime yeah he gets some moments a few few and far between yeah Yeah, but there are episodes like that where it really has him like take a stand for himself because he's usually such a soft-spoken kind of weak-willed character who doesn't like to get involved but Episodes like that one, it's always fun to see him kind of stand up and, like, make what he wants known. And then Ataru and Ataru's mom just not caring at all. Like, the the Tanabata episode, I think? The one where the star person, like, comes uh, into the home. That one is another good example of that. And, yeah, I think that's a great selection of favorite episodes. One more that... I'll mention because I've had success getting people into the show through it, but also because I think it's a very representative episode of the series. It's actually the uh, OVA, the 12th OVA, the one that they made for Shonen Sunday's 40th anniversary, you know, the 2008 one, the optical course wind. Mm. You know, that's probably the most recent piece of anime media for Yurisayatsu outside of Pachinko Machines. It's a really nice looking episode of the show because it's you know updated character designs and color palettes but also i think that it's a really great encapsulation of the humor of the series and just all of its greatest hits in terms of comedy like they incorporate all the characters in there all the major main characters they have all their big character moments in the episode like what they're known for like their relationships with each other, like all of that's in the episode. You get a sense of it very quickly. And it's just moves at a really fun and fast pace. It goes through a bunch of craziness. And it's just, I think, a lot of fun to watch. So I, that's another one of my favorite episodes. And I've had success, you know, just at parties with my friends where we're watching anime episodes. I've put that episode on and people will stop what they're doing after a while when the craziness really ramps up and they'll get into it and they'll they'll want to see more afterwards. So I think that's a good episode like to check out if you've never watched the series before even though it does look so much different from the rest of the series because it it was made so recently. And like if you like the humor of that episode if you latch on to the characters uh, from watching that episode, I think that'll give you a good sense of whether or not you'll enjoy the show. So that's my pick for an episode that is not only one of my favorites, but something that I think is a good episode to show to other people to like make them kind of understand what your thoughts is all about. That is a great episode because it is very, it has a sort of introductory element for people who might not have seen Urusei Atara before, but know who Lum mm-hmm. is. But it's also a good combination of both the anime and the manga as well, because it's, you know, it's, it's set at school. It's got a lot of, um, you know, Takahashi inspired moments. It's got some, you know, some pretty horrible, pretty funny violence in there. 
it's all centered around the school and it's uh it's got all the classic characters and it includes Kosuke as well. So I'm of course very biased towards <laughs> that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, do you want to sign us out then? I think it uh we've uh, we've gone above and beyond for this oh, yeah. uh, this episode. We of, had uh, a lot to say and we did not even get to say everything we wanted to say. But again, that's why we're doing this podcast <laughs> so we can get all our thoughts on the series out there. But I hope you enjoyed our the episode on the anime the first of many follow-ups that we'll do over the course of dozens and dozens of episodes however long we do this podcast but that does it for episode two of lum squad ac thanks for being on with me and uh doing no the problem show at me. all thank you very much for uh for putting in all the hard yards and i, I should say that um <laughs> Lamrom Yasha has actually done all of the hard yards in this one. Uh, they have edited the podcast. They have created all the social media accounts, and I thank you so much for doing that. My pleasure. I'm excited to do the show, and I'm excited so many people have responded to it, to it so enthusiastically and are looking forward to more. And I'm looking forward to doing more. Yeah, I, I can't wait to do more. It's um, my, my particular life, because uh, I have a... I, for those who don't know, I am 38 years old and I, I work full time and I have a, um, a wife and I have a daughter who has special needs. So I'm very grateful that my, my wife has actually <laughs> kind of lets me go off and do these sorts of things because she knows how much it, it means to me. And she's also very appreciative of the fact that without Lum, I probably never would have met her in the first place as well. So mm-hmm. I think she's, she kind of begrudgingly goes, yeah, yeah, this is your <laughs> thing. You can, you can, you can go do your thing. That's fine. So thank you very much. I really appreciate everything you've done. Most definitely. Thank you. And until the next time, AC, where can the good people find you on the internet? I am at uh, ProdTally uh, at Twitter. And if you just search for the Daily Lum hashtag, that's where you'll find me. And I'll uh, post about Lum Squad stuff as well uh, under the same hashtag. I will occasionally do episode streams, uh, which we do on rab.it. But uh, if you just follow me on Twitter, that's where you're most likely going to find me. How about you? Where, where can we find you? You can find me at Lum Ramayasha on Twitter and as Lum Ramayasha on a variety of places, including Animation Revelation, Animus, wherever there's a Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my manga and movie reviews on old-comic.com. I write reviews for new anime theatrical releases and whatever manga volumes I can get a hand on. So definitely look forward to some new stuff coming up because there's going to be a string of new movie releases and some new books I want to talk about and write about for sure. But if you want to check out more podcasts featuring me, you can check out the Manga Mavericks podcast, also available on all-comic.com. But also you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks, on Tumblr, mavericks.tumblr.com, on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, and all your podcast listening devices of choice. We're a show that talks about manga as a medium, as an industry. And yeah, that's a great uh, podcast and that this podcast the hashtag lumsquad podcast kind of spun out from that it did it is this is kind of a spin off as we were talking about spin offs before and you've you've made a convert out of me i've started listening. <laughs> i've already got a full schedule of podcasts to listen to and do this is my second podcast i do another one mm-hmm. 
but you know, you've made a convert out of me, and I, I listened to uh, Manga Mavericks on the way to work. Oh, awesome. it is it is really really insightful and really fantastic. So please give give that a listen as well. Thank you. I heartily endorse that one. Thank you. And also, if you want to help support uh, the show and support like the podcast that we're doing, we do have a Manga Mavericks Patreon. Patreon slash Manga Mavericks. We have some awesome tiers there. If you want more podcasts from us, we have a $5 tier for bonus podcasts. We also have a $15 tier for unreleased podcasts. Podcasts that we recorded but have never seen the light of day. As well as a lot of bloopers and uh, extensive blooper <laughs> archive. Almost 100 bloopers. So if you want to see outtakes that were never put into episodes of the show, that were cut out, uh, you have access to that there if you support the Patreon. And, uh, that would really help us cover the costs of uh, producing the show, material costs of getting books to read on Manga Mavericks, and it would help support this show as well. So definitely, if you are so inclined, uh, patron us uh, at patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks. And if you just want to throw a tip our way, don't really need like a reward off Patreon or anything, you can uh, throw us a tip uh, my way at a pay- at a Kofi slash Lomomiyasha, and I have a personal Patreon as well. Uh, Patreon slash Lomromiyasha. And uh, that would be greatly appreciated too. But as for Lum Squad, hashtag Lum Squad, and where you can follow and find more of this show, right now we are posting episodes in the Mong Mavericks feed, but there will be a uh, dedicated hashtag Lum Squad feed set up in the near future. Working out the kinks with that, but look forward to that. In the meantime, you can also find us on all-comic.com. We're also on Twitter at Lum underscore squad. We're on Tumblr, lumsquad.tumblr.com. We're on YouTube. Uh, just uh, search for our channel name and you'll find it. Link is also in the description. And I've actually bought www.lumsquad.com as well. So <laughs> basically at some point, I hope to, to, to put something up there that'll just basically redirect to any of those places. But I thought I needed to do something, anything to to try and help promote the show, and it, um, that was available, so I decided to buy that. Yeah, so definitely look forward to a the, the Lum Squad website uh, uh, in the future. We'll definitely get that up and running uh, in some point in your future. But in the meantime, definitely. if you have any questions, comments you want to send to us, you can send that our way at uh, lumsquadpod at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear more of your questions, your comments on the show, feedback. Yeah, thank you very, very much for all the questions you've been asking. It's it's really encouraging for us. Mm-hmm. So next uh, next episode, we'll give you a bit of a teaser. Is uh, so we've covered so far. We've covered the um, we've covered the manga and done some deep dives on the characters. We've covered the anime, which we did today. Next one, we're going to actually start talking about the fandom. Mm-hmm. And uh, and collecting for Urusei Atsara itself. So look forward to that one. And then after that, we'll probably do the movies. I reckon. Is that uh, does that sound good? I think that's a good plan. And of course, we'll do more updates on future volumes of the Wiz release of the manga. And there's so many things we want to do with the show that uh, there's. I keep endless- saying it's a finite resource but it's really not is it it just keeps going there's so much you can take from this thing that ended 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah there is an endless depth of things to talk about the years outside which is why we're doing the podcast and we hope you join us along for this wild and crazy rides through the wacky world of 
Rumiko Takashi Jersey Yatsura. But until the next time, this has been episode two of Flashback Game Squad. We'll see you in the next one. Matane, Dutch. Ciao.